like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. Tomahawk, my little flute benders, and welcome to I Like to Movie Movie, the podcast about movie movies. My name is Garrett Smith. My name is Dan Scully, and I am feeling like a tech god right now because <laughs> I don't know how to do things on computers because there's too many buttons, but I figured out how to turn the metronome noise off of this recording. You knew exactly where the button was. Yep, Garrett's the tech guy, and he didn't know, and I did know, and I'm going to be high on this for like a fucking month. Oh, this is going to be great because <laughs> we're going to cut to an interview, and it's going to come back, and we'll still be recording right now, and you'll be still high on that oh, people will be, be like jacked up. he did an hour long interview and he's still jacked up on his tech why is he so uncharged during this interview <laughs> yeah. it's because that didn't happen yet that's right but hey what better way than that to intro uh, uh what we're doing with this episode yes. this is an interview that we have with eric christopher myers whose new film butterfly kisses uh, played at Puff this year. Yes. Uh, it's a really, really great uh, furthering of the conventions of found footage. Yep. And so he was uh, kind enough to lend his time to us to pick his brain about it. Yeah. Uh, the movie is out now. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, I think it's on some streaming platforms. Uh, I think yeah. he said where you can find movies, you can find that. Yes. pretty much it. And I urge you, don't read anything about it. That's right. Just watch it because then you're going to read everything about yes. it. Yes. And uh, not that I want you to turn off this episode of our show, but I really would urge you to watch the movie before listening to this interview with Eric. Uh, we spoil a lot of the movie. We talk about the making of the movie, and that stuff will be very fascinating to you once you've seen the movie. That said, I think that the movie's still enjoyable oh, yes. after our interview, but in terms of directorial intent, I, I, not that I can speak for him, but I know my experience would be heightened by how I went in with a blank slate. Yes, you know, was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I can recommend try and see this movie. Uh, do Eric a favor and just pick it up on Amazon. Watch it uh, this week and check out it. this Pay interview for the movie. With him. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, and then strap in for our interview with uh, Eric Christopher Myers. And I will say, paying for the movie is actually a great value because this is the kind of movie that after yeah. you've seen it. It's fun to watch other people watch it, so it'll be worth it to put on again and show to someone and watch them shit their pants over it. It's, so yeah, it's and you've had multiple viewings at this point, so you can also attest to just the oh, yeah. fun of watching this. It's another that much time. better the second time yeah. around, and it's great the first time around. But it's it becomes a, a you'll yeah we talk about it in the interview. I don't it, want to say it now. It's going to be a worthy addition to your Blu-ray collection for sure. But in honor of this being so metatextual and a movie that is layers upon layers. Uh, we are also going to be coming back after the interview to do a list where we talk about some of our favorite movies within movies, I yes, believe is how I think we refer to we're it. Calling it. Uh, it's a pretty broad brush that we're painting with, but uh, movies within movies. So come back for that. It's good. I assure you it's going to be good. It's going to be a good time. So uh, enjoy our interview with uh, Eric Christopher Myers. Movie, movie. Bone Tomahawk, Eric Christopher Myers, and welcome to I Like to Movie Movie. Guys, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. So a uh, little history for our listeners. Uh, the three of us all met at this year's Puff, the Philadelphia Unnamed Film Festival, where your film Butterfly Kisses uh, played to a very enthusiastic crowd. And so I, I guess to start off, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your film? Uh, Butterfly Kisses is sort of a weird hodgepodge meta faux documentary about another faux documentary 
about another <laughs> faux documentary. Um, it's it's kind of taking the conventions of found footage and asking the question that's always unanswered in the genre, which is if we are supposed to be suspending disbelief and we are supposed to be taking what we are seeing as something that realistically was found later after the fact um, and was, uh, you know, featuring the death or disappearance of filmmakers in an alleged supernatural event, who found the footage? Um, once they found the footage, uh, what what sort of process did they go through? What made them look at the tapes or the, the film canisters or whatever in the first place? What made them think it was real? Uh, what sort of legal uh, protocol did they have to go through? How did it get into the hands of Hollywood? And how are we watching it in a movie theater with you know an Avengers trailer playing beforehand? Uh-huh. So that's sort of the premise of Butterfly Kisses. It's a documentary about a guy who uh, has discovered a box of old tapes that he believes is the Blair Witch Project for real. And we are following him on his quest to authenticate and then capitalize on what he believes is his golden ticket into Hollywood. What I love about your movie, too, is that I think even before the question of how was this footage found, a lot of the suspension of disbelief is almost immediately lost in found footage because of the question, why the fuck are they filming? Sure. And I think the structure that you have chosen eliminates that question immediately uh, because it's a film project and we, you know, because it's just kids filming for school, we, we eliminate all of that, layer a documentary over that. So it's purposeful that we're filming as opposed to, ah, shit, we left the camera on and there's a witch eating us. You know, and it answers that question right off the bat. Well, and, you know, something that was really important uh, to me in making the film was saying I want this to be metatextual. I want this to be self-reflexive. I want to comment on the tropes and the conventions of the genre. And, you know, in doing so, you have to say, well, where did this originate? And if you want, you can go all the way back to, you know, Nanook of the North or whatever. Uh, You can look at Cannibal uh, Cannibal Holocaust. But I think that for most audiences, the Blair Witch Project in 1999 was really the jumping off point. Uh, for all of the sequels and imitations and everything that followed. And so when we look at the uh, the tropes of the genre, it begins there. And so I thought, if I'm going to be commenting on the genre as a whole, then I really need to start with Blair Witch. I need to uh, sort of lift some of the story points in a way that it's not a carbon copy, um, but you immediately uh, draw a direct parallel to that film. So student filmmakers out in the woods investigating an urban legend in their area um, and you know, be able to say, we're going to talk about the last exorcism or paranormal activity or whatever else. But the Blair Witch is the one that everybody knows. And so it was really important to reference that whenever possible. It certainly kicked off the the modern era of uh, found footage. All of my familiarity with found footage definitely starts with Blair Witch Project. Well, one of the things we actually talk about in Blair Witch that I think is missing from a lot of found footage that is another issue with it that I think Butterfly Kisses fixes is that Blair Witch Project when you're watching it, nothing explicitly supernatural happens. Sure. Um, at any point, you could always just say, eh, maybe they're just getting fucked with by locals. Nothing explicitly supernatural, but pretty much every uh, found footage movie that I've seen after that does have explicit supernatural events. And so with your movie, by calling into question the idea like, oh, we added Peeping Tom digitally. Oh, this was and the fact that you are exploring the technique of the footage itself ends up giving you a way to have your cake and eat it too. Whereas 
it could be nothing explicitly supernatural happening, but you get all of the fun of explicitly supernatural things popping up in the screen. Yeah, I thought that in doing this, it would be important to try to create as much verisimilitude for the audience as humanly possible. Um, you know, one of the, the mission statements was, uh, you know, the found footage can... It, it, it can be unbelievable, whether from the beginning or gradually. Uh, you can question it at every turn because we're going to be questioning it, you know, hopefully ahead of you. We're going to be commenting on all of those things that you're expecting to happen that do happen. Uh, mm -hmm. Why is the camera running? You know, things like that. And at the same time, the documentary that is wrapped around it, for me, it was very important that that be as close to being completely believable as humanly possible, at least until the third act, when, you know, the, the the tropes and conventions I talk about start sort of creeping out of the found footage and into the documentary proper. Um, that was intentional. But, you know, I felt that I needed to get the audience to buy into this premise as much as possible. And that meant, unfortunately, backing off on a lot of the really, really in-your-face sort of supernatural effects. And I say, unfortunately, for people that are wanting that going in. Uh, but, you know, it becomes the question of, you know, do you want your gore and your ultraviolence and your, you know, big special effects moments? Or do you want to sit there and go, hey, well, you know, this, this could be real, or I can at least turn off my brain and believe that I am watching something legit right now. So it all depends, I guess, on, you know, what, what direction you're coming from as a fan. Mm -hmm. I think you walked that line perfectly because, like I said, I had the supernatural jump scares, but I also have that doubt in my mind where you go, oh, this could be all just fake, you know, fake, mm -hmm. fake. Sure. Uh, you know, you're, you're dodging that. It, it was brilliant. I, I uh, One of the things that I think is so interesting about it, and I really think is part of why you're able to pull that magic trick so well, is it's not immediately clear what the subject of the documentary you're watching is. It it it's it didn't become clear to me until maybe halfway through that the there's actual... a line where he specifically says like midway through like oh this is supposed to be a character study right. of Gavin York yeah. yes it, you you're not immediately aware that it's actually a documentary about Gavin York and I think you are you sort of pull a magic trick there where I think I'm watching a documentary about these kids that are trying to prove the peeping tom myth and in reality I'm actually watching a documentary about this other filmmaker and I actually think that that in some weird way that actually really helps sell the, the found footage aspect of this. Like it, I didn't ask as many questions once it became, once I realized like, Oh, this is about Gavin. Now this is about Gavin. Now I don't even need to as much question some of the ins and outs of this because I'm more interested in what's happening with Gavin. And that was one of those sort of things that was discovered through editing. Uh, Interesting. The film was in its first assembly. It was about three hours long. <laughs> okay. And that was, you know, not including things that I did not think were 100%, you know, had to be in there and okay. then could be chosen between. So the, it could have been four hours long for, for all I know at this point, but it was three hours. And that's a very difficult thing when you say, well, I'm trying to reach a 90 minute commercial runtime and you just have to keep, you know, carving and slicing and whittling back until you get to that point. And it's very much a battle for for narrative clarity at that point you, you you've got so much going on in a movie like this and you're trying to make sure 
that you're not underlining certain elements too much, that you're not hitting the audience over the head, but at the same time that you're not, uh, you know, emphasizing the things that need to be emphasized and losing the viewer. So it was a, it was a juggling act. And that was one of those things that, you know, what you're talking about, that, that the documentary was, you know, me doing a movie about him mm-hmm. versus about the content of his tapes. That was something that was introduced earlier initially. And I felt that it was very important to keep me playing myself um, sort of off camera for as long as humanly possible, just sort of a disembodied voice mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of let the audience ask, well, what is the, you know, what is the motive of this filmmaker who was making a documentary about this other filmmaker whose motives were questioning uh, as he is trying to endorse footage uh, made by filmmakers who we are, you know, questioning. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that, you know, just sort of letting that unravel would be more effective. And honestly, you're the first guys to comment on that. So thank you. I'm glad you, I'm glad you appreciated that. Oh, dude, right before we started recording, Dan and I were talking specifically about the moment that you finally enter the movie, like on camera, and we move into the third act basically from there. And you're, once you enter the movie, I think is when the movie really starts to become like, we're both off the rails and like way more in it. But like, I just, I sunk so deep into it when I realized like, Oh, this is house of leaves. This is, he's investigating himself. He's Mm. investigating this filmmaker. He's investigating this legend. And as those three things bleed together, he is becoming the main character in the found footage movie that we spend most of the found footage movie questioning the uh, intent of. It's almost like you go through an arc of I don't even want to be in this movie to we've got to finish this because I got to know if Peeping Tom is real. Yeah. Like from full skepticism and detachment to, you know, uh, possessed by it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, first off, I, I love whenever anybody uh, name drops House of Leaves. I am a yeah. huge fan of that book. I read that back in 2000. And I'm also a gigantic fan of Daniel Lewski's sister, Poe, the musician. Oh, Yeah. Um, such that, you know, her Haunted album is very much a response to that book. And they sort of, you know, cross over in a lot of ways. And it was a total happy accident that the band who does the closing track over the credits, they're called Steep Steps, and they're just absolutely fantastic, um, wrote this song for me that uh, very much evokes Poe. And I was like, okay, this was meant to be. This is just absolutely perfect. That's fantastic. Um, But, you know, going back to what you're saying about me being in the film, um, I'm not an actor. I don't like to be on camera. I have a face for radio. Um, (laughs) But as I was writing this, you know, it was, I kept trying to delay that moment. I was like, I really don't want to be in this movie. I don't (laughs) want to be in this movie. But I couldn't find a way around it. Um, unless there was somebody else playing the director, but, you know, I, I felt like people would know that right off the bat, you know, anybody, anybody that knew me, at least here in this region would know that this was completely fake. If I showed up, if my real crew showed up, uh, you know, it might at least raise some eyebrows or people go, Oh, that's really cool what they're doing here. Even if I don't believe any of it. Um, but I didn't want to be in the film and it became very, very clear that I had to be, and it sort of worked. I thought in the sense that I don't feel I look, you know, 100% comfortable on camera, like I want to be there, that I want the camera rolling. But that is how I would react if we were in a situation where suddenly our subject disappeared, and we just kept rolling to at least document that part of it, if that needed to be the end of our film. Um, and that we were just rolling for, as I think I say in the movie, for posterity. 
So yeah, it, it, it worked out that way, but I will never be in another movie again. What's funny is the first time watching this movie, I, I didn't, I mean, I, I think you introed the movie, but I didn't put two and two together that you and the guy on screen were the same dude. And so I just assumed in my head that this was an actor. So if I can offer that compliment, you did a, a good enough job to fool me. Uh, and even if it turns out to be method and that his awkwardness on camera was, <laughs> was uh, congruent to your awkwardness. But well, I, yeah, I thought it was always, an actor. It's always been cool when we've done a screening and, you know, afterward I'm called up for the Q and a and people look and, you know, you hear people in the audience saying, Oh my God, he was in the movie. And that, that's always, you know, sort of surprised me. And I guess I'm not looking at that from the perspective of, you know, complete and total strangers who are watching the film and just sort of taking it all as being a movie. And then, you know, the real director comes down and it's like, Oh, that, that was the real director in the movie. So yeah, it's uh, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. But like I said, I'll never do it again. <laughs> I uh, I just, the thing that, uh, just to maybe bring that point home about you being in the movie, the, the thing that that really added to the movie for me uh, was that, uh, you know, it, in, it, as you're saying, found footage becomes a difficult thing very quickly. Most people don't do it very well. You're immediately aware that they're breaking their own rules. Uh, because this movie is sort of trying to almost... Uh, in 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 the way that Scream is kind of commenting on its own genre, this is also commenting on its own genre. By bringing the director into it as a character, we get into that whole House of Leaves things uh, of authorial intent. And to me, that like makes that layer on this movie makes this movie sort of I don't know. It grows beyond just being a found footage movie. It's a great entry in the found footage genre. Well, also, I think kind of not to use this word in a time when people are mad about it, but elevates it kind of beyond it because you're actually in, you're really digging into if I'm watching the Blair Witch Project and I want to believe it, then I need to know and believe why they want to keep making this movie and to investigate that whole concept by actually bringing the director out from behind the camera and have the director then kind of explicate like what his own obsession with this project is. I don't know. I, th I think that really kind of, I don't know. To, to me, that just gives it almost like a philosophical bent that uh, I don't think I've ever seen in a found footage movie before. Well, in my other life, um, I've done a lot of uh, writing of film criticism and movie reviews and things like that for various publications, which of course just sets me up for, you know, extra criticism on my end when I release <laughs> a film. Um, Double-edged sword there. But being that I am so very fascinated by uh, genre theory and, um, you know, again, conventions of different genres of film or storytelling, this was a really fun way for me to, you know, be able to almost do an academic criticism of found footage while still making, hopefully, an entertaining film. Um, you know, I, I'm glad that there have been people who have responded to that sort of element the way that you guys have, um, you know, but I'm also glad that there are people who are just like, oh, wow, it's cool. It's fun. It's different. Uh, you know, so it, it's I guess my my theory was if I can, you know, offer you a cheeseburger and you get a steak, well, then, you know, that's that's just <laughs> bonus because well, well, well put. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I actually made a note when I was watching the movie last night. Um, there's a one of the talking heads says this line that I think says everything about the film in referring to why filmmakers make found footage he says quote unquote you are building in an excuse for anything wrong with it 
And yes. I think that's where found footage typically fails when it fails is because you find a filmmaker leaning on the conceit as opposed to using it. And that's when it becomes, that's when all those questions pop up of how did they find it? Who assembled this? Why are they still filming? That's when all of those pop up. And that was some of the, the, the really fun stuff for me to get in the process of shooting was, was getting these talking heads, like uh, the gentleman you're talking about, David Sterrett. The man is a brilliant uh, film critic and scholar. And uh, Steve Yeager, who also, you know, won at Sundance for his documentary, Divine Trash, all about John Waters. And, and that movie rules. Yes, yes, it absolutely does. Um, getting these guys, and of course, Ed Sanchez, to talk about those things that I'm trying to comment on, you know, perhaps uh, just sort of skimming the top layer, the things that, you know, are immediately in your brain. Why is the camera on? Why, you know, all the unnecessary shake? Why the, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, having those people comment on those points before you can or in tandem with with you uh, so that the audience is maybe taken a little bit off guard. And then at the same time, very trying, you know, trying very, very subtly to build in, uh, you know, deeper commentary throughout that is, you know, maybe hitting you on a subconscious level just by enacting certain things. Or again, you know, I, I, how successful or unsuccessful I was in that, you know, it is very much, you know, dependent upon the viewer and what they're bringing to the table. But this, this movie was a ton of fun to make. It was, you know, fun in a way that nothing else I've ever done has been. Can, can I ask, Eric, just just because you brought it up. So so with some of these talking heads where you're getting them to kind of explicate a couple of maybe issues with the genre. Is that something where you go to them and say, like, hey, I, I need this out of you. I need to get this out of this talking head interview. Or do you just ask them some do you have um, uh, Gavin come in uh, with his own set of questions and just hope that you're going to get something like that in reaction to him. No, actually what we did was um, for the found footage, the, the two stars of the found footage playing the student filmmakers, I had them conduct all of their own interviews. Okay. To me, that was really important that they be able to fall into the roles as much as possible and embody, uh, you know, the characteristics of each. Mm -hmm. um, when it came time to do the documentary, I did not have Gavin, the central subject, doing the interviews because, I mean, we see what happens when he encounters Matt Lake, the author of Weird Maryland and all of those yes. books. Okay. It, oh, that turns into hilarious. a turns into a total shitstorm. It all falls apart. Uh -huh. So, you know, my philosophy was that if I were making this documentary, I would be interviewing these people and I would okay. then be editing these segments in. And the way that we did it was, you know, we shot the film. We essentially treated it like two productions. We, we filmed the found footage during the dead of winter. And then we had to assemble and put all of that together. And then we filmed in the summer, all of the documentary sequences. And that was done for a couple of reasons. The first being that um, I wanted to be able to revisit certain locations during different, um, you know, seasons so that, you know, subconsciously, you know, the viewer would be looking at it and going, well, you know, I can believe that these are different time periods because look, there's snow on the ground, you know, in this one sequence, and then it's the, the height of August in the next, um, you know, that, that creates, uh, you know, an invisible sort of, uh, you know, backdoor for the filmmaker who's trying to say, look, I didn't film all of this at once. That um, totally made that, that worked on me hundred percent until you just said it. I didn't even think yeah. twice about it. I like, I just bought into like, Oh, that footage is a decade old. 
Yeah. You, you know, like I, I didn't even think twice about it. Yeah. Coupling that with, you know, the, the very different shooting style uh, with the, you know, camera uh, footage of the era. But, you know, like like one of my favorite moments in the whole thing is when the kids go to Matt Lake's house in the found footage and they roll up and there's snow all over the ground and the trees are barren. And then you cut immediately to Gavin showing up at the same place. And, you know, everything's lush, everything is green, and it looks very, very different. And you can sort of, you know, understand why this location and having found it in real life uh, holds a certain mystique for him. Mm -hmm. But getting back to the talking heads, the, the other reason that we shot during two different, you know, periods of time over the same year was I needed to be able to put the found footage together and then be able to hand it off to all of my interview subjects mm -hmm. and allow them to study it allow them to come up with their own opinions, their own thoughts, their own theories, at which point I put together a hot list or a hot sheet and had the sort of topics I wanted to talk about. And I sent it to them, gave them some more time to watch the footage, some time to marinate on those questions. And then we sat down, we did our interview segments and we just talked. And most of those interviews went on, you know, in excess of an hour. Um, and that a lot of that stuff constitutes the three hour cut. The most fun then was there is the, the sequence in the film where we start talking about the content that Gavin chose not to edit into his assembly. The scenes that the student filmmakers, uh, you know, had filmed and had perhaps cast doubt upon their integrity as filmmakers. And so it was very, very fun to interview uh, all of these professionals and experts on, you know, the subject of filmmaking to have them had, you know, having watched the found footage, having given it a lot of thought, giving very intelligent and articulate and insightful answers, and then going, hey, guys, I got something else to show you. And mm. springing a couple of deleted scenes on them and then rolling the camera again and having them talk about it and respond to it. It was, it was as close to a documentary, especially during those moments, as it could be being staged. So are you presenting that documentary to these people as if it is a documentary? You're not saying like, hey, I made this movie, but I need you to investigate it like it's real? No, no. I, I went the other route and I very, very specifically said, you know, these are people um, whom I respect greatly and I don't want them to think that I'm pulling a fast one on them or compromising their integrity in any way. So I told them, I, I pitched each one on what the film would be. Okay. And once they were game, I said, now divorce yourself from all of that and treat this as if I were bringing you something that this guy is saying is real and deconstruct it, tear mm -hmm. it apart. It's absolutely fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Please tear it apart. And if anything, I thought some of them were too kind and you know, some of that <laughs> stuff was left out. So that's fantastic. It works great because I mean, those interviews are as captivating as they would be if I were watching a real document, you know, and watching mm -hmm. like real experts talk about something. And when, um, which I am. And that's, it's impressive that you're able to pull that off, even by bringing the artifice down a little bit to initially get them there. Yeah. I guess yeah. if you try to pull a fast one on them, they might reject it entirely. Yeah. And just be like, what are you, what are you trying to show me? This is, this isn't real, you know, fake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but even when, was there any reality to, I believe his name is Matt Lake, the weird, weird guy. When he has his like, all right, everybody out. That feels so real. Is he just that good of an actor? So what happened was um, 
the actor who plays Gavin, uh, his name is Seth Adam Kalick, and I've known him in excess of 20 years at this point. He's uh, great, too. He's he fantastic is in your movie, man. perfect asshole. Yeah. He is fantastic. I mean, the, the beginnings, the origins of our relationship um, would be that I was a writer. I was working on screenplays. He was a theater actor, and he would perform them out loud for me so that I could, you know, take notes and see what was working, what wasn't. And, you know, we were, you know, young 20 somethings dreaming of the day that, you know, we would be able to make a movie together. Um, he's cool. He's incredibly charismatic and he's incredibly quick on his feet. And for me, the really challenging part of making this was, you know, sort of the double-edged sword of saying, I'm going to cast real people playing themselves in the documentary. On the one hand, it creates this very, very meta, blurred line between, you know, fantasy and reality uh, that's a lot of fun. But on the other hand, um, you're dealing with people who are not actors, many of whom have absolutely no experience in front of the camera unless they are a talking head or something like that. And now you're asking them to emote. You're asking them to perform. Um, you run the risk of, you know, getting, you know, deer in headlights, you know, uh, line readings that are like, you know, performing the menu at Taco Bell. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very dangerous thing if it doesn't work. And for me, casting Seth as Gavin and being only one of three actors in that entire documentary um, and having to carry the storyline a lot of that had to do with the fact that he is, again, very charismatic, um, very quick on his feet, can improv, can you know play within the parameters you set, but he's also fantastic at pissing people off. <laughs> um, he's so good at pissing people off. Um, he is the perfect asshole because I'm rooting for him until I'm not. Yeah, yeah. And what we did during a lot of those scenes was, you know, he would push buttons. Um, we'd go off script and, you know, I would allow him to sort of find, you know, witty barbs or what have you, or I would feed him material. And so when we went to Matt Lake's house and we, we shot all of that, um, Seth and I had kind of a, a list of things that would conceivably get under Matt's skin, little, little things that would be thrown in between the lines of dialogue. Oh, he straight up digs at his book. He's like, oh, it's well put together, but whatever. <laughs> I love imagining the meeting where you two sit down for an hour and just write a list of things you could insult him with. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. I mean, there was, there was a deleted scene where, you know, he, where Seth sits down as Gavin at the, at the table there right before the interview. And he pulls out his copy of Weird Maryland and he says, you know, hey, will you autograph this for me? And Matt's like, oh yeah, of course. And, and Gavin is saying, hope you don't mind. I got it at a used bookstore, you know? So I realized the money doesn't go into your pocket. Um, which of course every every creative type wants to hear. He loves yeah. to hear that. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was just a question of and and that scene. Oh my god, that ran another ten or fifteen minutes long in the original assembly, and it was just digging at this guy, digging at what he writes, what he publishes, and you know, you know, Matt understood it was a movie, but at the same time, we're springing these things on him on camera and none of this was helped by the fact that for all of these real people who would interact with Gavin Seth and I decided up front that it would be very um beneficial if these individuals did not meet Seth if he was Gavin from the moment he showed up so that there could be no camaraderie there could be no 
um, you know, ah, this guy is just an actor. Let this guy be an overwhelming personality from the moment he walks in the door. And, you know, that it, it provided great results and he did exactly what I needed. If there was any downside, it was that Seth felt terribly depressed afterwards because he was like, everybody in this movie hates my guts. It's like, I promise you'll, you'll, you'll get to meet them, buddy. I promise they'll meet the real you. Yeah, if you can get a room full of supernatural enthusiasts that are so enthusiastic that they've built a group around it, if you can get them to turn on you, you've you got to be pretty good at pushing buttons. Yeah. Well, they were the hardest people to nail down for this film. And we approached numerous paranormal investigators and um, inspired ghost tracking who appear in the film. Uh, they were among the original people we shot off to. Mm. And... Almost every single group was afraid that we were going to be there to make them look bad. Or no, make if them anything, look... they come out of it looking really good. Yeah. Because they have like healthy skepticism. The, well, and the Gavin character makes himself look so bad, <laughs> so bad that there's no way any of them really could have fallen into a trap where they end up making themselves look bad because yeah. Gavin is just digging a hole for himself. And that was what I was trying to pitch to them from the beginning. And yeah. I mean, that that whole bit there where Gavin is standing up in front of the, the group and talking to them, you know, what you don't see is there was about, you know, 90 minutes to two hours of me just standing in front of the group and trying to answer all their questions and explain, no, 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 no. Look, this isn't a real documentary, but we're treating it like it is a real documentary. This guy is an actor, but he's not supposed to be an actor. And no, the Blink Man isn't real. You don't need to go investigate that tunnel, really. Um, and, and having to convince them, I'm not here to make you look bad. How you choose to make yourself look is entirely up to you. Yeah. But the, the idea here is that this guy or people like this guy, you know, whether, whether it's people trying to take advantage of, um, you know, supernatural groups or making fake Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster UFO videos or whatever, this guy is thinking you're an easy mark. And the fact is, I know you're not. That's why we're here. And I want you to be able to use, as you said, you know, skeptical inquiry and ask the right questions and, you know, have problems with the footage for all the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And he's going to get bent out of shape. And the fact is that you come off as, you know, seeming like the complete and total rational, sane individuals that you are. Mm -hmm. And I, I still think they had some question marks over their heads until they saw the movie. And then they're like, oh, we love it. This is fantastic. This is great. Yeah, they, they come off great. In it, I think there's actually a smart piece of editing up front that I noticed when I was watching it yesterday that almost seems like it's about to poke fun at uh, the, the ghost group. But it ends up just being that much more uh, contemptuous towards Gavin. And it's right when it starts. There's some sort of line about how, oh, he really wants to, you know, convince these people. And it cuts to a shot of the crowd. And the one guy in the foreground <laughs> is just pounding a beer. He's like pounding a beer, just bottoms up. And so in my head, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be like a Bruno sort of thing where, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen's doing goofy stuff and it makes these people look ridiculous. And it ends up being a bait and switch because even that guy, I believe, has some very smart words to say to contest Gavin's footage. And uh, it was such a great reversal on me being ready to laugh at these people. And then I, I think that's even the first scene, too, where it occurs to me as a viewer, like, oh, I'm not really supposed to be on Gavin's side. Yeah, he's he's kind of a jerk. Mm. And it, so, that, that bait and switch kind of, uh, you know, drew me into that. I'm so glad you guys caught that. I mean, you know, and that, and that edit was intentional. You know, he's, Gavin is saying something like I'm here to get allies or whatever. And the guy is pounding the beer and. 
you know, you always hear some snickers in the audience uh, yeah. during that whole thing. We're at a VFW, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're immediately ready to be like, yeah, you know, it, these these people are, you know, probably going to fall for this in a way that none of the academics or or anyone else who's interviewed would. And then, as you said, we we flipped the table on him. And, you know, it, that's one of the more popular scenes whenever we've screened the film. It's well, it's great because what the joke ends up being is like he's there to uh, uh, get some sort of he's there to get some sort of uh, he wants uh, validation. Yeah, validation. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. He's looking to get validated. And as soon as you cut to the guy with the beer, you're like, but how are these people, even if these people do believe it, like, how is that validation? And then the joke becomes like, they don't even believe, even they don't believe it. They like, have standards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it works great. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. They were a lot of fun. Um, you know, we lost, we lost some members of the group who, who again, were very, very cautious about peering on camera and, you know, mm -hmm. they, they respectfully declined. Um, but again, you know, it, this whole film and the way that my, my co-producer and co-editor and cinematographer, Kenny Johnson, who is very well known in the world of documentary filmmaking, specifically um, professional wrestling. Uh, I, I desperately wanted to have a real documentary shooter and editor to work on this, to give it that level of reality. And one of the things we had going in was saying, okay, the found footage, it's a, it's a horror movie and it's going to be what it is. Um, but the documentary has to be as close to reality as possible. And we need to sort of say going in, what movie are we making as filmmakers? The, the real people here standing behind the camera. If we're treating this like it's a real documentary, are we, are we focusing on the tapes? Are we focusing on the potential supernatural aspects? Are we focusing on the missing kids? And we both agreed, Gavin is our story. Mm -hmm. And even though that was all there in the script, it became a question of pruning down some of those other elements that we just didn't have time for. And it always came back to Gavin's story when finding the runtime we needed. The, um, he is, he, I mean, Gavin is a really great character. He's fantastic. He is absolutely. And I'm actually, I was looking at the IMDB. I love that he is just credited as himself. That is a great way to uh, keep the reality there. Yeah, the actors are all, you know, they're chomping at the bit to have their names added and they'll oh, be here at the end of the month. But, you know, yeah. it was it was a fun thing for us to play with and go, hey, Absolutely. we're not we're not trying to Blair Witch you. Yeah. Um, and, and that was that was something, again, that was important to me from the beginning, which was saying, look, people people already fell for that in 1999. Um, I'm not here to, you know, try to resurrect that that meme or what have you i'm what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to play a little bit of a game of misdirection and let you have fun with the movie it's it's not about fooling you it's letting you have fun with the movie uh being able to pull out your phone which audiences i don't recommend you do don't please don't pull out your phone <laughs> in the middle of a movie theater thank but, you for that yes but you can pull out your phone and you everybody in the documentary is Google verified. You know, they're all there. They're all real people. Their, mm -hmm. their businesses are real. You can find anything you want about them. Right down to Gavin, um, to whom we gave a wedding vid videography page. Oh, wow. Um, we gave him his own Facebook page that was being updated in real time throughout shooting. And the real people that he was interacting with were responding in real time. That's so, incredible. That's wild. It's it, it was supposed to be a very fun interactive experience for people 
to just sort of lose themselves and maybe decide to, you know, you know, pull it some some nits and and go on a little bit of a treasure hunt after the fact. Yeah, because it's the internet. I mean, you can kind of imagine that, uh, you know, had I seen this at 16, uh, I might I might have just started going on a deep dive on the internet and then finding oh, yeah. these like Facebook threads and wanting to read them and get more into it. That's pretty cool because that stuff just exists forever now as a companion to the movie. Absolutely. And, you know, it's 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 cool when people find that stuff online. It's cool when when people decide to go down the rabbit hole and see what they can dig up with this movie. But again, I mean, that was the whole point was to say, I'm trying to create something that's fun, that unlike most found footage movies, allows you to legitimately suspend disbelief and wonder Mm -hmm. how much of this is real, if anything at all. And you know, t- for that to be part of the experience, part of the fun, even if five minutes in you go, this is complete and total bullshit. Um, hopefully you can still go along for the ride and you're curious to see how all of this plays out and, and to find out at the end when you read the credits, who was an actor and who wasn't. Um, it was a lot of fun when we screened the film for the very first time. We did it at a festival um, out here in Silver Spring at the AFI uh, spooky movie and spooky movie. They, they very much promoted this screening on the closing night of the festival as being a secret surprise sneak preview. So cool. And so there were, you know, there was nothing in the literature, nothing on the website, just you got to come out and see this to find out what it is. And of course I'm nervous that night going, you know, maybe five people will be here, you know, who's going to come out. Uh, for something when they don't know what it is. And instead we had a, you know, we had a full house and it was the only opportunity that I've had uh, for the film to just start and for the audience not to know what they were going to watch, to have no idea what was going to play out in front of them and just let it work whatever magic it has on them. And it went over so well. It went over so very well. And I just wish that, you know, everybody that saw it would just be able to see it, you know, with virgin eyes that way. That's so I remember cool. even at Puff when they brought you up to intro the film and Madeline was like, is there anything you want to tell us? You were just like, uh, no, <laughs> nope, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotta go. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a hard movie to introduce. It's a hard movie to preface in any way. I, I didn't want to cut a trailer for this. I mean, I realized that for commercial purposes, I needed to, but I didn't even bother putting together a trailer until, you know, we signed with the distributor and the distributor's mm-hmm. like, okay, we need a trailer. Um, because I really wanted audiences just to walk in at all the festivals we played in 2018 to just be able to walk in and to have whatever expectations they had, but no, really nothing about the plot to know nothing really about what genre it was or whatever and just be you know hopefully taken by that hopefully smacked upside the head i love that you essentially wanted them to find the footage yeah yeah i guess that's a really good way of of putting it but yeah Uh, i i had a very probably somewhat singular experience watching this movie because uh as film festivals be film festivals, uh, Dan and I saw this at Puff. We happened to be standing just outside the theater as uh, Seth arrived, and you kindly introduced us to Seth. Uh, Seth had like a hat on and glasses, so when he appeared in the movie, I didn't immediately recognize him. And I watched the whole movie, uh, not knowing that it, that it was an actor, believing that it was kind of Gavin. And at the end of the movie, Dan leans over to me. He goes, man, that guy was good. Do you think that guy was like, was he playing himself? Was that? And I, and I go... And I was like, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was an actor because I feel like I recognized him. 
and then an hour ago yeah and then you brought him up on stage and i was like oh i do recognize him i met him 90 minutes ago seth has come to and indeed most of the cast you know they've come to nearly every screening that you know they've been able to drive to Mm -hmm. um barring being on the other coast or what have you and they've always sort of lurked in the background because we thought it would be fun that way. You know, like everybody wants their moment in the spotlight. Everybody wants to get up and hold the microphone. And what I, you know, very much tried to emphasize was I said, I think that because we don't have a trailer and because we are intentionally trying to build buzz and word of mouth, it's going to be more effective if, you know, the the credits scroll by at, at high speed, you know, at a film festival, people aren't, typically reading that they're sort of responding to one another or whatever to what they just saw. And I wanted the buzz to start going out there that this movie is crazy meta. Um, Some of the people are real. I think some of the people aren't real. I don't know what the hell I just watched. And I wanted the actors to kind of, you know, blend into the background and then be able to have their moment upon release to step forward and take credit. And Seth, you know, always would show up to these screenings clean shaven um, as disguised as humanly possible, as, you know, wearing glasses as non-Gavany as humanly possible. And, you know, I know he's been waiting for his moment to, to take center stage. But actually, when, when we went to POF, that was the first time I ever called him up. Because I was like, well, screw it. You know, the movie's going to be out in a month. Come on up here, man. Take, take, take a bow. Well, that, I mean, to his credit, let him know I said this. Like, I literally met him right before I watched the movie, and I didn't know I was watching him throughout that entire movie. I, you know, I, I totally bought that I was, that was a totally different person. He's a I, chameleon. He's a chameleon, yeah. and that's one of his strengths. Yeah. I want to see him in more stuff. You got to make another movie. Put him in it. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's kind of a foregone conclusion at this point. Oh, yes. Good Good news. I'm going to be able to afford him, you know, in the future. (laughs) Oh, of course. We all know what happens with these these cases. You know, all the cast, they they go off to, you know, become movie stars or, you know, higher profile or whatever. And the director's sitting there going, hey, guys, I'm still trying to get funding. So, (laughs) Well, the good news is now that you've been on our show, we just cut like 100 miles out of that journey. Yeah. (laughs) So you are welcome. (laughs) Awesome. Ride that bone tomahawk to success, baby. I have to ask this question. Um, one of the things that I loved about this movie is that it, to me, it was ultimately about the power of a myth to draw you in. Um, I think that's what draws people into found footage is the whole idea of like, oh, but what if, but what if, mm-hmm. and we purposefully put ourselves into, oh, oh, the Jersey devil, you know, oh, this guy. And so is peeping Tom like a pre-existing legend or is this just something you came up with? So the environment in which we filmed uh, is Ellicott City, Maryland, and anybody that has paid any attention to the news um, since, you know, since earlier this year knows that the entire historic district where we filmed um, suffered the second of two major floods in the past two years, and it has more or less devastated the town. and you know the the film is in a lot of ways kind of a at this point sort of a time capsule wow what that environment looked like it it, you know it's it's suffering very greatly right now and we actually wrapped filming literally one week to the day of the first of the two floods so it was it was serendipitous in that respect but um Ellicott City, particularly its historic district, which is this incredibly, you know, picturesque uh, environment with cliffs and buildings perched up on top and church spires. And, you know, it's it's this fantastic area and it is reputedly uh, a hotbed of supernatural activity if you believe in that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there are, you know, ghost walking tours and numerous books that have been published 
Um, Haunted Delicate City just came out. Uh, definitely recommend checking that out. It's got some great stuff, including Shooting Tom. Um, oh. But uh, the, the really fascinating thing is that, you know, every tavern, every storefront, every church, every location has a ghost story. This train tunnel that is the focus of Butterfly Kisses, which is Ilchester train tunnel, it is, you know, drilled through a sheer rock face and is accessible only by this train trestle that spans a river below. Um, it's this incredibly menacing atmospheric location, even in broad daylight. Uh, it has very strong sinister overtones. So of course, kids go there at night and they have been for decades and decades and decades since it was built in 1903. So it is reputedly as haunted as the rest of the town. However, this is one of those few locations that has the virtue of being number one, cinematic as hell. Um, but number two, it has no particular boogeyman attached to it, hmm. or at least has not prior to butterfly kisses. So this was an opportunity for me to say, I'm going to create an entity that lives there, supposedly lives there, give it sort of a, a series of rules, you know, a la Bloody Mary or what have you, and um, go with it and see what happens, you know, when audiences see the film and, you know, whether they dismiss the entire film as being uh, fabricated or if, you know, there's a case of false memory syndrome, particularly amongst locals where they go, yeah, it's a fake documentary, but it's based on that real urban legend that I heard about when I was in third grade on the playground. My brother told me about that or whatever. And that seems to be happening. Peeping Tom is showing up on the internet. There are paranormal YouTube pages oh, that so are cool. doing episodes on him. The book Haunted Delicate City that I just mentioned uh, has a chapter on Peeping Tom and Ilchester Tunnel. The author uh, with whom I've since become friends had no idea it was total bullshit. Oh my until God. she met me. And I mean, it has all of the pieces of yeah. your classic urban legend. It, it has everything that I love about, you know, whatever urban legends I fell in love with as a kid. It, it has all of those elements. That's it really I, is imaginative and fun. I can't believe you created your own urban legend. And it, <laughs> it, like, it worked. That's amazing. That stuff absolutely, absolutely turns me on. I've been really into urban legends and folklore and... Uh, cryptozoology and uh, you know conspiracy theories and all of that stuff since I was a kid and it's very much from the skeptical perspective for me it's those things are fun these stories are fun but I'm interested in sort of looking at it from a sociological angle what what is the inciting incident uh, that gives birth to a belief system so being able to play in those waters Again, this movie was was fun as hell to make because it just allowed me to do so many things that you don't normally get to when you are doing a typical narrative film. So I got to pull in my love of all that stuff and, you know, play with the internet as sort of a seeding ground for this legend while at the same time, you know, commenting on genre and working with actors, but working with real people. And it's it was just a blast. That's yeah, you cool. made you, you made three movies. You, you really yeah. overworked yourself. Yeah. Well, uh, it took a while. The movie definitely took a while, but um, but yeah, I mean, it's aside from you know the the typical issues of independent filmmaking, you know, money and time and all of that stuff. I had no complaints. It was just so, such a good time. Who designed Peeping Tom? Then I'm I'm curious. Give give him a shout out. It was a it was a combination of several people. Our art director is a guy named Carl Porter, and he not only co-designed Peeping Tom along with his team of Sam Lukowski and Nick McMahon, um, 
he also made all of the, you know, the pictures of Peeping Tom, um, you know, the fake book pages that are shown. He fabricated that, uh, emulating certain, you know, time life, you know, (laughs) mysteries of the unknown sort of books. (laughs) Um, He also, you know, created, you know, the journals the characters have, the box of tapes, you know, first in their pristine state and then aging them. His fingerprints are all over this movie. And Nick and Sam were absolutely invaluable in assisting and building upon what he was doing. Um, We also, you know, it it was a question of just trying to find the right shape and the right silhouette for Peeping Tom, because we knew that um, it needed to be something striking and immediately recognizable that you see just enough detail while seeing absolutely nothing at all. So Mm -hmm. Laura Myers, who was doing the costume and, and, all of that, it was a lot of us sketching, drawing, pulling out pieces of clothing and trying to find that silhouette and achieving that. It was, it was very much a, a collaborative effort. You nailed it. Peeping Tom is a very uh, cool, like distinctive, recognizable. I can picture him in my head immediately. Mm-hmm. And you never fully see him. Yeah. But yep. you can still picture yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. Which is per- I mean, per- it makes him that perfect sort of uh, phantasmagoric like entity, you know? What you're going to see is always going to be more frightening than what you don't. The, the imagination is always so much more potent. Uh, the boogeyman is terrifying in theory when he's under your bed. The moment you show the boogeyman, it's just like, ah, oh, it's a guy wearing a rubber mask or whatever. It's Mr. And Boogity. It's Mr. Boogity. <laughs> so, you know, we, we definitely made a point to say we need to see enough of him that audiences don't feel cheated. And even during his big close-up moment, I still wanted it to be something so fast that it, it burns itself into your mind and your mind starts filling out all of the finer details. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a mashup of, you know, Slender Man and sort of Victorian Gentleman, Jack the Ripper, uh, things that, again, you'd look at it and go, he's cool. But at the same time, there are elements that I immediately, you know, can recognize and perhaps falsely remember, you know, seeing or hearing about in the past. In, in watching it uh, last night, I was playing like Where's Waldo with it, where I was just looking for, you know, looking for uh, Blink Man in every nook and cranny of every shot. And I was so pleased that I'd, I'd, I had forgotten that just, a, just about every time he shows up, then the people in the movie explore the footage and we get like a closer look at it. But even then, it's still not clear. It's, it's the perfect design. Uh, even the big jump scare where he sort of shows his face, I knew it was coming. I was waiting for it. I was bracing myself for it. It still scared the fucking shit out of me. But then I went back to try and pause it to get like a really good look at his face and, and still couldn't do it but was chilled the whole time. So kudos to the design. That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you dig that. I mean, one of the things that has been so fun for me watching the movie with an audience and, you know, I, I, I don't watch the movie when I'm in a theater at a festival or whatever. I watch the people watching the movie and specifically during certain moments, you want to see if people catch things or if it just goes right by them. And there's always been, you know, at least that one person in the audience who the first time Peeping Tom shows up, you know, or particularly the moment where the, the film students are in the car yes. and, you know, he's on the side mm-hmm. of the road where you see somebody in the audience reach over and start tapping frantically the person they're with and go, you're <laughs> so that that's awesome. And to me, I knew that so much of what would, you know, hopefully encourage people to watch the film a second time because it is designed to be, you know, watched and rewatched so that more material and more, you know, subtext can be mined from it. Um, I wanted people to be able to go back and try to see Peeping Tom the first time. And as you said, you know, we do kind of like highlight and show where he was in clips 
all except for one. There's one moment that we never revisit. And I, it, it's still probably my favorite one and, you know, puts the hairs up on the, the back of my neck whenever it happens. But uh, it's like the one we intentionally said, let's not, let's not tell people where he is. Let's let people find him for himself. For themselves. Nice. I I was I was watching this at home last night and my girlfriend does not do well with horror. And so she opted out and she had some work to do and she was just listening to the movie. And it's not like it's it's a movie that has like a whole lot of atmosphere in in your typical horror movie sense. But even just knowing it was scary and hearing like intermittent scare moments, she she went upstairs. She was like, I can't listen to this. I'm too scared. So you don't even have to watch to be scared. Well, then the, the guys at Studio Unknown would be very, very happy to hear that because they created this incredible soundscape for the film. And yeah, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing that those guys, they're the ones who are the, you know, the the post-production audio facility that we I thought that was here the in the case. film. Yeah. Um, they were they were people that I've worked with and I've known for years, and they were totally down for this project and thought it was great, such that Matt Davies, who is the one in the film who later discovers certain sound anomalies that Mm. may or may not point to the footage being authentic. Um, And he was there from minute one before we even started filming. He was fabricating those sounds that would be found in the footage so that we could have that there to, you know, respond to. Um, He he ended up doing full on geek out because, you know, I didn't want the found footage to have score. I feel that's one of the things that can most pull you out when you're watching this genre. At that point, you're just like, oh, it's a movie with shaky cam. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, the documentary can have score. The documentary should have score. But there still needs to be um, components of oral atmosphere that are inherent within the found footage. And in brainstorming, we were like, well, what if we score with electrical signal noise? Um, you know, or catching, you know, certain circuitry, the sounds of motors running inside a mini DV camera, things like that. And then, you know, either play them as they are or process the hell out of them and, you know, be able to create crescendos, oral crescendos and, and do all the things you would do with music, but do them with sound that would be inherent on tapes that are badly, you know, potentially badly water damaged from sitting in a basement under a boiler for a decade. That's very cool. And that's actually one of that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie What was when uh, the one engineer comes back and is like, I might have actually found oh, yeah. something in these. He tapes. discovers the Morse code. Yeah. And the visualization of the, the, the sound. Yeah. And I because one of my favorite things is like, um, how do I want to put this like sound to investigate sound in that way? Like I for some reason, I am willing to buy into there being some sort of supernatural signal in a sound or something like oh, that. EVP recordings scare me more yeah. than any footage of a ghost that yeah. I find online. I yeah. don't know why, but I find that to be a more believable way for some sort of other entity to communicate with me. So the I, so when you brought it to that level and the way you did it, in which it's these guys that basically have just found out they're not even going to get paid for this work, <laughs> but they're so fascinated by it, they continue to investigate it, and they're the ones that find this thing that they're like, look, like it or not, like we might have found something. That is like a moment where these sort of, um, as Dan was talking about earlier, these supernatural elements, like I started to kind of buy into them a little bit. I was like, wait a minute, maybe there is something here. Maybe I buy it. I, I loved that whole sequence. The coolest, one of the coolest, I, I keep saying the coolest thing about this movie, there were so <laughs> many cool things as a filmmaker, was that, you know, if you, were in, if you were a tech geek, if you were into playing with retro materials or what have you, um, you know, we did in a way sort of a period piece. Even if you're just saying it's 11 years removed or what have you, suddenly we're like, okay, we need the right cameras to be filming on or showing in the shots. 
We have to have the right computers with the right versions of software. All those Blu-rays need to come down. We need to put up VHS tapes and early DVDs. Um, your flat screen TV needs to go away. We need a tube box. It, it was a lot of set design and and things of that sort. Um, you know that again, Laura Myers was very, very invest, uh, very, very important in pulling off. Uh, and but that also that sort of enthusiasm, uh, you know, went over to the audio design. And like I said, Matt was just completely geeking out with, you know, using you know state of the art, but at the same time, kind of retro uh, means and materials to capture all of these sounds. And one of the things that he was, you know, proudest of that I love is, you know, when he finds that sound that then is, you know, sort of transcribed into Morse code that he then feeds into this program, um, you know, from Isotope that, you know, gives you a visual readout of what the sound is. And then it's the silhouette of Peeping Tom. That was completely real because he reverse engineered it, Mm -hmm. starting with an image and then went backwards. And so it's just, it's so cool because it's, it's legit. We didn't fake that. Yeah. That was another thing too, in, in looking back, not, not to be a dick in watching it a second time, I was trying hard to poke holes in the, in just the thoroughness of the found footage concept and couldn't poke any. So great work. But one of the things was very early on, I, the, the sound that he ends up, you know, finding the Morse code in does start appearing and it's consistent throughout the whole thing. And, you know, you never notice it the first time you're watching it. But the second time I was like, that's there every single cut. That's awesome. The, not an ounce of laziness. It, it was, I mean, you guys went deep. There is no hole that I can poke in it. It was, it, it again, it was all in the editing and making all of that work. And, you know, Kenny, my co-editor, you know, he he wanted to strangle me on numerous occasions because, you know, I, I, I was so sort of specific about the elements that I wanted to be in there. And my, you know, sort of, over attention to detail in certain places, but you know, he was paid off. You need that attention to detail there. Um, not to, not to shit on it, but there's, there's a movie that I love. The sacrament is a, uh, mm-hmm. it's a really great movie and sure. it's a found footage movie, but there's one part where there's too many cameras in the scene Yeah, and they just got so caught up in creating this atmospheric moment that the conceit of found footage has to be abandoned yeah. for this one scene to work. And it sucks because I love that movie, but I hardly ever revisit it because that one hole that I poked in it is is enough to sink it for me. And, and it's a shame. It's a great movie otherwise. Yeah. So I really appreciate that that you guys did the work to make it unsinkable. Well, we tried very hard to, you know, find occasions where, you know, if we did have two cameras running, where you would catch little glimpses of the second cameraman in the background. Oh, I like that. Um, little things like that so that, you know, you, you sort of cover your ass. That You go, mm-hmm. look, I want you to attack sort of the, you know, the conventions of the genre. I don't want you to be pulled out of it and going, you know, wait a minute, they, they just broke their own rules. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that was so great about working with Kenny, again, as the cinematographer and the co-editor is that, you know, I love documentaries, but I'm typically a narrative filmmaker and I'm typically, you know, somebody who is very deeply invested in horror. And he was coming at it from a completely different perspective. And I think that's what made the edit the right, you know, hit the sweet spot because, you know, any sort of, you know, pull and tug that we had with one another was because I was trying to pull it over, you know, into the horror side. He was trying to pull it over into, you know, the, the realistic human side. And it allowed us to find a nice balance, I, I think, and I hope. 
I think you pulled it off. So. Yeah. So you got a, this is out on Blu-ray now or soon? Yes. Yeah. It just came out actually on October 23rd. It was charting on Amazon uh, right away, which was great. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, it's available DVD, Blu-ray, streaming, download, all that fun stuff. What did you get to? The reason I ask is, did you get to include any of some of the deleted footage you've been talking about? Like, would I get to see some of that longer, more uncomfortable interview with Matt Lake? I wanted to, but uh, the the Blu-ray is just the film and the trailer okay. and the subtitles. Okay. Uh, you know, I'd love for for audiences to be able to see that perhaps through you know another another method. Uh, one of the things that that was saddest for me was that we had this fantastic commentary track, mm. and I didn't want to do a commentary track because mm. I felt like, I mean, you're, what do I have to say about this at this point? You've, you've seen the movie and you don't need me pointing out all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody cares about what everybody ate from craft services that day. Or whatever. <laughs> and so I hit upon the idea of contacting my friend, Ben Radford and anybody who knows anything about skeptical inquiry will know Ben Radford as, you know, a writer, um, as being an investigator into, you know, all sorts of phenomenon, weird and otherwise. And, you know, skeptic, you know, he's, he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I was like, Ben, here's what I'd love you to do. If you would, I would love for you to watch the film and then do a commentary track where you are now picking apart my documentary the same way the documentary is picking apart the found footage. That's amazing. Call total bullshit on it and just rip it apart in all the same ways using skeptical inquiry. And he recorded this fantastic piece and we weren't able to include it on the Blu-ray, but I'd love to get it out there at some point. I love that extra level to the meta textual nature of this whole thing. Uh, That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, you should. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's got to be a way. You I can think do that, that we should start a hashtag campaign yeah. that's release the Myers cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. For the, for the full cut. Awesome. Go for it. Go for it. I'll, I'll retweet. Oh right. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, before we wrap it up, can you talk a little bit about what it is that draws you to being a horror filmmaker, and if this is something you would, you would try to, you know, step into a different genre in some way? Well, this is my second feature. Um, I've directed some you know horror-based shorts i've written some screenplays uh both for myself but also for other filmmakers that have been produced um this is my first feature-length horror film uh the previous one that i made uh was a psychological thriller called roulette it was released in 2013 and while it was you know uh, like i said a psychological thriller it my love of horror kind of started to leak out, particularly in the third act. And there was some stuff that was very vicious in that movie and got me banned from a couple of film festivals. Um, it's kind of my... You just sold a copy. Yeah, I know. Now I, now I need to see it. <laughs> well, Roulette is available for free on Amazon Prime, so feel free oh, to check it out. Buddy, guess what I have? Uh, Amazon Prime. Are we watching that after this? We uh, might watch that after <laughs> yeah, cool. we finish this interview. Be kind. It was absolutely no budget. It was my, uh, it was my calling card. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, it was... If Butterfly Kisses is kind of, you know, the pseudo academic, uh, you know, cheeseburger with a steak on the side or what have you, um, Roulette was kind of my uh, European art house Lars von Trier style dark, dark indie thriller. Um, At any rate, yeah, I mean... You said a lot of buzzwords there that sell both Dan and I pretty hard. So awesome. Hashtag all the things. Yes. (laughs) But, uh, But the point I'm getting to is that 
I made a film as my as my entry point into independent filmmaking that I chose very specifically not to make a horror film because I felt that that was what most independent filmmakers, and particularly in my region, you gotta you gotta sort of be recognized in your pond before you can swim outside. And I wanted to do something that was very different from what my peers were doing, not necessarily you know trying to show you know anybody that you know we should be doing things other than horror i love horror i just wanted to be able to sort of establish a name for myself of course my love of that genre really started to leak out as i said into the film and you know it got me some good reviews it got me some bad reviews um it played some film festivals the most important thing that it did was it got me meetings it established relationships um, you know a lot of these real people in butterfly kisses would not be in butterfly kisses if not for roulette Mm-hmm. Um, now moving forward, I, I, I've really, now I'm just like, you know what I want to do? I want to make another horror movie. And this time I want to do a straight narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to make something that's, that's really classy, you know, something that, you know, for me, the gold star of the genre is the exorcist, mm-hmm. something that is really, really heavy and oppressive like that. I would love to do something like that next. That I'd love to watch sounds it. Awesome. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. I'll be there. Uh, now I, I don't want to keep you too long here, Eric, but you and I had talked a little bit offline cause I, you are, uh, making your way through the Friday, the 13th franchise oh, yes. right now on, uh, the, the blog that you write for, uh, will you tell everybody what blog you write for? So that uh, that gets a plug too. Well, I'm a guest contributor. It's, uh, the Baltimore media blog. Okay. And I was approached and asked if I wanted to participate in sort of a round table discussion of genres during the Halloween season, um, or of franchises, I should say. And so, you know, we all three sort of, you know, tackled the entire Elm Street series and we're doing the Friday the 13th series right now with all of our opinions on each entry and seeing how they complement and, you know, go off the rails from one another. Uh, but I, I've grown up on these films, so I've seen them a million times. They're, they're a lot of fun to write about for wildly different reasons. Well, I just saw all 10 of the first 10 for the first time in like the last two years, I guess, maybe like two years ago. Yeah, I watched this all when those. you got bit by the horror bug. Yeah. And went nuts. Uh, and so I watched uh, Friday the 13th all the way through Jason X. Uh, and I really fell in love hard with that, that Did whole you do franchise. The, the reboot one? I have not yet. Okay, you should do it. Because I'm still trying to make my way through the Elm Streets so oh, that I can nice watch nice. Freddy versus Jason. And then I can uh, watch the remakes of, of both of those movies. Good call. Yeah. Very yeah. good plan. Very good plan. I'm I'm more of an Elm Street guy, um, but I, I love I, Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, so that uh, there's a podcast right now called um, "In Voorhees We Trust" with Gorley and Rust, uh, which nice. is Matt, yeah Matt Gorley and uh, Paul Rust talking about the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. And they said something that really I, resonated with me and kind of captured how I feel about Friday the Thirteenth is I like really any horror movie I like better than every single entry in the Friday the 13th franchise. <laughs> all, of, all of the Elm Street movies I've seen, I probably like them as individuals more than I like any Friday the 13th movie. I, you know, uh, any recent horror I've seen that I've really liked, I like them better than any Friday the 13th movie. But as a franchise, Friday the 13th, like, really has a hold on my heart as just the most fun I've had watching a bunch of movies that are kind of meant to be like a cohesive whole but are really this like crazy roadmap through like a decade of just like shelling out money to like put more well, stuff on the and screen I'm pretty sure every single entry was intended to be the final entry <laughs> yes. and so they just had to keep like oh no let's open this box yeah. again and figure out what we can do yeah it just i think they're so fun it, it is definitely like I, I think it's my favorite franchise, even though I might like Halloween itself better than any of them. And even mm. though I might like Elm Street better than I like any of them. You have um, to admire a franchise where 
the filmmakers so completely did not give a shit. Yes. <laughs> Not only the quality, um, but but you know even the the continuity from yeah. one film to the next, they really did not care, and they were like, these movies are exploitation pieces that are designed to finance our bigger prestigious yes. you know films. Yep, um, you, you got to admire something where you know it's the fans are the ones who obsess over the details. And yeah, filmmakers are like, well, who fucking cares? Whatever, he's going to cut somebody's head off in the next one. If you go back and read through my reviews on Letterboxd as I was watching them, at the end of every review, I'm like, man, this movie actually has a cool twist at the end. I'm excited to see like how that plays out in that, nope, the next one yep. just completely and trashes it. it's gone. And it yep. happens every <laughs> single entry. It ends on some sort of kind of cliffhangery note that you're like, oh, cool, I'm excited to see what happens next. And then it's not important. I think the reason why Jason always, res or the Jason movies resonated me with me as a kid is like, I, the reason why I think I... I I mean, I feel the same way. I think as a whole, I yeah. love that franchise. The individual movies are kind of stinky, yeah. but it's because that movie like was the first one to establish any sort of horror iconography in me. Yeah, uh, I didn't see the Freddy movies till I was older because as a little kid, they were they were like too gruesome and yeah. and like too repulsive. Whereas like Hockey Mask, Knife, yeah, done, <laughs> sold. Yeah, which is isn't even all those movies, no, but still, yeah. the iconography is there. Yep. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I mean, the fact that. Yeah, every movie sort of promises, you know, something exciting in the next installment. And then you're like, oh, it's just the same movie again. Uh, <laughs> except that, you know, our, our you know, anti-hero, Jason, uh, looks completely different in every single film. You <laughs> yeah. know, is hey, whatever, you know, life-threatening wounds he sustained in the previous installment, they... they forget about it just forget about that shit yeah yeah sometimes this... he's brooding sometimes he's goofy <laughs> sometimes he's just a dude sometimes he's a monster yeah. sometimes he can teleport around a cruise <laughs> ship that has a gym on it well even his but even his mythology makes absolutely no sense yeah i mean you know they could they, they couldn't get anything straight with this i mean did did jason Voorhees? did he drown as a child and then resurrect as an adult-sized zombie Right. And if so, does that mean his appearance at the end of Friday the 13th was only a dream where, you know, he jumps out of the yeah. water and grabs Alice? Or was the boat jump real and that <laughs> signal Jason resurrecting at the age of his drowning, at which point he continued aging? Or was he only believed to have died? And in reality, he lived a hermit-like existence on the shore until his physical death at the end of the final chapter. Right. But if that's the case, why did he simply go home? <laughs> and if he was yeah. already dead, why is it that he only took on the generic rotting zombie qualities following his reanimation by lightning in Jason Lives? Or did he have a bizarre healing factor that made him impervious to death as shown in Jason X, which allowed him to reanimate and become human prior to his journey aboard the Grendel ship? Uh -huh. Meaning he didn't just come back from the dead, but literally came back to life after maybe sort of dying as a kid, then dying as an adult, and then resurrecting as a zombie. But and then, then how did he drown? How did he drown in the first place if he has this, you know, healing factor? And for that matter, was he a bald, deformed child as suggested <laughs> in the first film or a normal looking kid with a full head of hair as shown in Jason Takes Manhattan? Or did his hair only grow on half of his head like in part two? And if that's the case, was Mrs. Voorhees shaving her son's head because it was better than her already odd looking son sporting a comb over at the age of 10? And how did he go from long hair at the end of part two to being completely bald at the beginning of part three, but back to bald in the latter film's flashbacks to events occurring prior to part two? Was rapid hair growth part of the super soldier serum that David Cronenberg wanted to derive from him? 
I, oh, that's true. David Cronenberg yeah. did one. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, in the in the best movie. And and also, uh, really, this is my most pressing question. Beyond all that, is how how is Tommy Jarvis? Is it Tommy Jarvis? Tommy yeah, Jarvis. Tommy Jarvis. So good at prosthetic makeup that he's able to put intense prosthetic makeup on makeup on in less than eight seconds. <laughs> he goes in the other room, and then he's baby Jason. Yeah, yeah. But then he's got like kung fu skills in yes. part oh, yeah. five that disappear in part six. Well, that's fast and furious logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's a kung fu master until they aren't. Yes. Gotcha. Understood. Yeah, that is that is the best breakdown of that I've uh-huh. ever heard. Because it always bugs me in part two when they're like, Jason must have watched as they killed his mom. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, well, why didn't he just like stop it? Yeah. <laughs> like, why didn't he just get out of the lake? Yeah. Go home. Because again, <laughs> we as fans overanalyze the fuck out of this oh stuff. yeah 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 and frank mancuso jr and the suits at paramount they were like just make another one it costs five dollars and now we yeah. can make the next bomb we still film. got that hockey mask in the back room right yeah. exactly get, get it on a dude let's go i what i one of my favorite things about that whole i really love jason x that i've come around to that just being like my favorite of that whole franchise just because it, it's such a bananas franchise from start to finish anyway it seems to be the dumbest but yeah. it might be the smartest exactly <laughs> it, like it, it knows i don't know it just knows all the tropes of that series it just run through them like a jungle gym and it's really fun but what i love about that movie and i i'm so surprised they well i'm not surprised but i wish they had done this uh i that movie ends, I think, on potentially the best way to just reboot a franchise. It ends with the one kid riding Jason's body through space until they turn into a comet together. And it cuts down to the Earth, to Crystal Lake, and you see two teenagers watch that comet like go through the air. All you need to do is start the next Jason movie with that comet crashing into Crystal Lake. And now we have Jason buried at the bottom of the lake again to restart this whole cycle over again, right? Now he's zombie kid back in the bottom of the lake because mm. he's zoomed down from space. Because they do this weird thing too. I noticed when I was watching it that like the kids that are on Crystal Lake at the end appear to just be teenagers from 2001 or whenever that was made. Whereas the rest of the movie seems to be taking place like two, 300 years in the future and everybody has a totally different kind of costume on. It, it almost implies that he, as a comet, travels back through time back to 1981 you know what i mean like oh it's, yeah that's that's a self-fulfilling prophecy exactly, and that is yeah. why he like cannot be killed starts this cycle over again he's also sometimes a worm monster that can only jump that's into right. the bodies of other Voorhees. yeah that's right so and, it all ex- works and exit via uh aaron gray's vagina yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, but then again freddie was re- resurrected once by flaming dog piss that's so true. who knows well, you know your your concept of how the franchise could have been rebooted makes yeah. total sense um but you know that just begs the question of why have there not been further sequels to these films? So whether it's you know, yeah. Halloween is doing big business right now, but Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth and Texas Chainsaw Massacre—the whole thing with these movies was that during the '80s they cost nothing to produce; they were mm-hmm. notoriously low budget, and they made tons and tons of money. And yet we can't get you know a sequel to any of the reboots. We can't yeah. get you know, any returns to the original. Hopefully the new Halloween film is going to inspire some sort of a slash. I think it will. Yeah. Well, I think Saw kind of had the, like Saw kind of followed that template where none of them intended a sequel and then they just brought it back and just retcon the fuck out of it to make it make sense. There's a 3D one, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, they didn't go to space yet, but like yeah. it's, Saw kind of took all of the energy of our just needless franchising like that, which, you know, a lot of the Saw movies are better than others, but I always defend them because they were the Jason movies of the 2000s in that yeah. degree. You know, they're just 
they they were cheap. They filled you know asses in seats, and I saw them all. So fucking, it worked. It worked on somebody. <laughs> That's uh, I, is is Tyler Maine the name of the guy that played Jason in the remake? Do I have that? I right? think Tyler Maine played no. uh, uh oh, Michael Saber Myers Jesus, right? in uh, but he played Michael Myers in the rob zombie oh, okay. halloween's who, yeah that, it was guys? it was derek mears who yes played. derek that's who mears, I'm that's it. Yes. i believe i've heard him say in an interview that their idea for a sequel to that friday the 13th oh. reboot would be to set it in the snow which oh, i heard I about the is... found footage one. Oh, interesting they were going to do a found footage uh, jason movie which yeah i'm in interesting yeah been, I, I think I mean, they've been talking him... about all these ideas for years i mean originally yeah. jason x was going to be jason in snow but it was just oh. prohibitive you know shooting huh. up there in those sort of elements yeah that makes sense interesting because i think that would be awesome that's like i like that the idea cool. of just like literally put him in a different setting basically and i think that immediately puts some energy into it you know mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah well anyway i really just i'm so glad well, that i asked you about teenagers that teenagers would slip and fall in the snow rather than just falling over like they do oh and you could decapitate them with a sheet of ice oh icicle stabbing hell yeah oh, dude. that uh that's a diehard two moment i believe I think, the icicle stabbing. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 i think yeah. you're right and, and blood on the snow i mean that's a striking oh. visual the red and yeah. white yeah, it yeah. is. That Black Christmas remake, which was just okay, does a lot of blood splattering on milk, and I love it for that. <laughs> Ooh, it looks good. Nice. Ooh, it looks good. Well, I'm super glad I asked you about that, because that uh, that tirade you went on explaining yeah. the entirety of this franchise in under two minutes is maybe one of the best things that's ever happened on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, great. Hey, franchises are fantastic, fun to talk about, and you know, I got to you know tip my hat to you guys for your uh, your Psycho franchise. Uh, oh, thank you. Because it is one of the most notoriously under-discussed, mm-hmm. um, you know, franchises. I mean, you guys said several times, you're like, you know, you talk about Psycho 3 and people are like, wait a minute, there was a Psycho 2? Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a fascinating series of films in that each film is so completely different from the one that preceded it. Mm-hmm. And yet they all marry together and they're all fantastic for different reasons, either because they're legitimately strong, like Psycho 2, mm-hmm. or they're kind of goofy and off the rails later on. I mean, it, Psycho and The Exorcist are two franchises where you've got this whole you know, handful of sequels where they are all completely different and they're so fun to watch and talk about for that very reason. Well, Dan and I have talked about maybe wanting to do some more series on franchises, and uh, you have uh, uh, spent some time talking to us about how much you you do love The Exorcist, so that might be something we decide to do in the future, and if we do, I'd really love to have you on for one of the sequels. Hey, guys, bring me on. I'd be absolutely happy to to run my mouth and go on another tirade. Oh, right on. Please, we we would love to have you. Really, any excuse to have you back on. I'm actually about to venture on, uh, because I just did all of the Halloweens and wrote all those up, Yes. and so in seeking a new franchise, I'm going to be on the Shame Files podcast. And doing all of the Jack Ryan movies, of which I've seen none. <laughs> I think I think I've seen Hunt for Red October, which I think is a Jack Ryan. That's the first one. Yeah, that's, that's the first that's one. one. That's what we're starting with. Yeah. And I am now of a the age where I should probably have kids, but don't. And like <laughs> I think of Tom Clancy thrillers as dad material, so it's uh it's time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I worked in a bookstore, and I remember when the Tom Clancy books would come out. Um. Yeah, they were dads. Yep. <laughs> this Father's Day, take your dad on a yeah. I don't know a ship that's crashing into terrorists. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what they are. I don't know anything about Tom Clancy. <laughs> that's about right. That's a pretty good approximation. Ben Affleck as far as is I know it. Yeah. T- uh, some, some of, of all, all fears. fears. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, okay, Eric. We really don't want to keep you too long yeah, here, buddy. Thank you so much uh, for for giving us your time, and I can't wait to just I can't wait to watch people watch this movie. Yeah, gentlemen, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It was fantastic catching up with you. 
Absolutely. Uh, real quick, let people know where they can find you and your movie. Uh, find me on Facebook. Find me on Twitter. Eric Christopher Myers, uh, E-R-I-K, which is, you know, not the typical way. Um, Eric Myers. And uh, you can find the movie on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, uh, wherever. Wherever you find movies. Look out for Butterfly Kisses. It's out. It's available. And... Um, my kid needs to go to college, so buy a copy <laughs> legally. I would appreciate that. Yeah, and Dan and I highly recommend it. We we really loved this movie, so we're, we were very excited to have you here. Yeah, man. man, this is cool. In a world where there's so much found footage and you got to parse through the the good ones and the bad ones, this is like a great one. Immediately so, yeah. worth recommending. Yeah, awesome. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks for your time. All right, that was our interview with Eric Christopher Myers, director of Butterfly Kisses. I hope we left in that thing. You, you don't cut the Friday the Thirteenth thing. Oh no, that's in there. Well, that's in there. Good. Oh yeah, good. yeah, yeah. Because that was you all heard it. Yeah. Now that I know it was in there, that's the best thing that has ever happened. The show. <laughs> His rundown of that. He. I haven't seen those movies in over a year. They're and fresh. I, it's I, like I watched them. Yeah, it was like I watched the whole series in an under two minutes uh, with Eric there, uh, who was fantastic. We thank you so much, Eric, for giving us your time like that. Uh, so check out his movie on Blu-ray. Please pick it up on Amazon. And, uh, you know, follow him on social media and stuff because he has some very exciting things, I think, in the works as well. So, And the dude's like a like his brain is like a horror vault. Yeah. Um, he, he can really go in deep on just about anything, it seems. So as we find that that uh, our fans are a lot of uh, our, our horror junkies, uh, yes. the, those episodes seem to do the best. This guy seems like a great resource for all of the stuff that tickles your fancies. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so as we said before, Dan and I are now going to dip into our favorite movies within movies. Movies. Of, now, I didn't do any ranking. I have Me one neither. that's a number one. OK. Um, and I have more than five because as I started to think of them, yeah. I started to think of them all as indispensable. And I think what I've landed on is that putting a movie within a movie is a formula that, in my estimation, does not fail. I agree. It's always good. Yep. And so some of these are just little novelty things and yeah. some of them go a little bit deeper. We can get them on a case-by-case basis. Because even if this is where it's going to turn into an Abbott and Castillo bit, but like even... Even if the movie that you're watching is not very good, usually the concept of the movie within the movie is like so it's fun great. to talk yeah. about afterwards. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I have one that I, is probably like my favorite, too. But um, I, I have a bunch here. Most of mine, I was able to kind of get the the sort of butterfly kisses vibes of like okay. a, a sort of metatextual. This is like a, See, I feel like all of the things like that, that I wanted to talk about yeah. have been on other lists. Like yeah, we yeah. talked about the last horror movie. Yes. That's probably my favorite example of that. So I left things like that off. I bet one of these has been on a few of our lists in yeah. the past. Probably. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and I left adaptation out because I just want an episode on that. Yeah. I got to yeah. get Matt in here and, and do it right. We, yeah, we yeah. really should do an episode on that. Well, I'll knock that right off my list and make that my first. Oh, one right on. Yeah, Cause let's I, talk about adaptation. A little I, bit. Yeah. We, I mean, it's the it is the ultimate meta movie as far as I'm concerned. And it hurts to watch when you're trying to contend with it on a meta level. Yes, and not because it's being cryptic because yeah. it's not being cryptic. No. It's just so fluid with the way it moves through its layers. Yes, that you find yourself you know you're halfway down the water slide and you're like fuck I'm yeah. halfway down a water slide. Yeah, and and you know not to get into it too much because I really would like to do an episode on that movie. But as far as this list is concerned, and it being a movie within a movie, you've got on one hand they literally go to the set of uh, being John Malkovich during a scene. Oh yeah. So yeah. there is literally a movie that you can rent right now that they sort of walk into in the midst of the movie adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also about a writer trying to adapt a book into a movie and ostensibly you are the watching that adaptation the movie you're watching is called adaptation but you are ostensibly watching what he ends up writing as the result of trying to 
Yes. <laughs> adapt the orchid thief, right? Like that's. Well, it's he couldn't adapt the orchid thief. Yes. So he tried a different type of adaptation, and in yes. doing so, wrote a fictional story yes. based in the truth of him adapting it. Yes. So we see both the process of the movie that it resulted in being written. Yes. As well as seeing a completely fictional. Uh, 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 and it, I've gone cross. It's I, yeah. that's exactly what happens. I really want to do an episode on it because I really want to get into. Basically, my favorite thing about it, which is what makes me cross-eyed, is the written by credit at the end is both Charlie Kaufman and his fictional brother. Uh, His fictional brother might be the only fictional person nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. Well, and what I think is fascinating is... You guys tell I was holding in some some breath on that one? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, In my estimation, the third act of the movie adaptation is, is written by Donald Kaufman. Yeah. Based on some of the events that happen in the movie, I'd like to get into that more on an episode Imagine about adaptation. But yeah, it's true. Oh, it's so it, good. I, I in in my estimation, that's why that writing credit is that way because I think Charlie Kaufman basically dies at some point over the course of the story. No, he dies after yes. Donald singing him that song. Right, and then or no, actually, I think it's Donald who dies. Is it Donald? It's Donald who dies because Char. I mean, Charlie's the yeah. star. Yeah, it's Donald who dies, and I think it speaks to the idea that he had to create and then kill this muse right. in yes. order yes. to get that. Third You're right, act. and that makes sense. In that sense, though, yeah, Donald Kaufman did write that third yes. act. Yes, and it because it's the third act that has all the narration, has that song, has the explosions, all the stupid stuff it's, Charlie didn't want to do. Of the stuff that and Donald he needed does. Donald yeah. to do that for yeah, him because it had to be there. Yeah, because yeah. he had to have an ending for his story. Basically, now what was the movie that Donald was writing that got some traction? It's called. It's basically identity it's called the three the three that's it i couldn't tell if it was the three or the ten and the yeah. ten's the david wayne movie and yeah. it's a, it's about a woman who's being pursued by a slasher of some kind <laughs> and the cop that is helping her by tracking down that slasher who at the end of the movie are all revealed to be the same person that's it and the three. if i remember correctly my favorite thing about it is at one point he's describing a chase scene that will happen in the three <laughs> between someone on a horse and someone on a motorcycle and donald describes this as you know it's like a real machines versus horse thing <laughs> I gotta watch this again. It's, it's been ages. It's so good. That's so funny. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that movie. We should do an episode on it. We should do an episode yeah, on it. I would love to. I'm into it. Yeah. All right. Should I do one? Please. All right. So adaptations off the list. So, um, I I like this one because the the name of the movie is also the name of the movie. Okay. But one of my favorite movies within a movie is in the Three Amigos. Okay. Yeah. Because the plot of the Three Amigos is that they are silent film stars. And this town misunderstands what this movie is and hires them to actually dissuade real bandits from taking over their quaint little city. And so they show up thinking, but, you know, whereas the town thinks that these guys are real warriors, they show up thinking that they are doing a, just like a press sort of thing, just a a good, a a good event to beef up some, uh, some support. And throughout the movie, we do get clips of them in heavy black and white makeup, (laughs) you know, for black and white lighting. And it's just a great moment for these three really, really great physical comedians that aren't always physical. Yes. Steve Martin, uh, Martin Short, and Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase is probably the most physical because of falling over and stuff. Sure. But they have to do silent pantomime, but in the style of characters that we've already met in terms of they can talk, they can speak, they can interact. And so watching them play these these almost silly heroes that are being portrayed as pretty badass heroes, at least in the realm of the movie juxtaposed against them in the real world while still wearing the same ridiculous costumes. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. My favorite parts in that movie are anytime that it shows the movies that they're in. 
Yeah. So and it's just the three of me, the three amigos, yeah, with the yeah. exclamation point. So that's just a fun one. I, l- I love that. That is so fun. Uh, Man, the way Martin Short looks in full black and white makeup, and he has to like bat the yeah. eyes to like woo the ladies. It's so funny. Yeah. And that, it's true. I, you know, I never even think about that movie that way. But it is just like three of the best physical comedians, uh, oh, yeah. like getting together Who to mostly do something. talk. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's so fun. And and they get to do good talking. They have yeah. great rapport. That movie is like one of the funniest movies ever made. It's yeah. so good, and everyone can do the salute. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, th- uh, this might be the the choice I'm most excited about, actually. So okay. so I'm gonna throw it out. And I I think you've seen this movie. Uh, and I don't necessarily want to spoil it for our audience, but that I kind of have to to talk. About about it in this regard so skip a few minutes here if you've never seen creep have you seen creep oh i've seen both creeps okay yeah. yes so have i i think the first creep is one of my favorite examples of a movie within a movie and again skip forward if you haven't seen it you really should see it it's really fun they're both on netflix they're both worth watching this is a good choice actually I'd, yeah if you remember the end of creep has the double jump scare where we first watch him kill the guy mm-hmm. and then that guy the camera just holds for a while while that guy kind of slumps over on the bench yeah, yeah, yeah. And he walks out of frame, and then he just enters frame again really fast and goes yeah. rah into frame. And then as soon as he's having fun, he's a silly yeah. guy. <laughs> and then as soon as that happens, the camera spins around and turns out to have been being held by Mark Duplass the whole time. And he does another ah into the camera. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so we've literally been watching him basically film a movie that he already edited. Like we've been watching his filming of this movie that he then cuts this like thing into at the end of another jump scare. Where not not only does he reveal that I basically hired this guy as a director of a slasher movie that I wrote, produced, and edited and starred in and yeah, actually yeah, yeah. killed the guy in. Uh, I basically hired him to direct it, and I have now edited it for your entertainment. Like you've just watched my that's slasher last movie. horror movie shit. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Uh, uh, that movie is that's another one that is. Uh, like deceptively smart yes because it is just a simple dumb like kind of funny mumble core yep. you know post mumble core found footage slasher yes. yep. <laughs> which if, sounds like rote but it's not no yep. but it's really really smart it's really it's smart. about making movies exactly it is and then i don't know if you remember about telling stories really exactly yeah. the big reveal at the end is he's got a stack of vhs's yes. with other yeah, people's yeah. names on them so this is like one in a long-running slasher series that he's mm. been starring he's in. franchising. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Creep 2. Exactly. I actually forget how Creep 2 sort of ends. I actually do, too, and I need to revisit it because I liked it a lot. I didn't quite like it as much as the first, but I yeah, thought it same. was really good. Um, but I know they have intentions to make a third one. So Threep. I Yeah, three. I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm interested to go back and sort of revisit that and see. Cause I, I seem I'd to re- watch that again. I seem to remember the ending is actually kind of twisty in that one. Well, because I remember we had a conversation where we were like, because the thing about the first one is, is he who's the creep? Right. You know. Right. And then in the second one, it's like he's the creep. But I still had that same feeling of like, but is she the creep? Right. <laughs> you know? Yes. Like, is, exactly. Who's the creep? Yeah. Exactly. Am I the creep? Yeah. Yeah. We're creeps. Yeah. I almost. I feel like if I remember the end of that movie right, uh, you might be able to call Creep Three Bride of Creep. Yeah. 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 You know. Yeah. Maybe. But yeah. I, but I could be wrong about that. Anyway, Creep. I mean, I love that. Creep. Yeah. I would. I would watch Bride of Creep. Hell yeah. <laughs> creep Hell and yeah. Creepette. Um. Let's see. Okay, uh, actually, now that I'm looking at mine, mine are mostly just great movies within movies. Yes. But um, this one, and it's funny because I actually typed the title wrong. Yeah. In the movie Holy Motors, which Ooh, I, I haven't typed seen that. in as Hot Motors. Hot Motors. Um, Holy Motors has a scene where, uh, oh, why am I not going to think of his name? Uh, Denis, not Denis Villeneuve. Not Penis Villanova. Not Penis Villanova. I just wanted to say his name because it's, oh, Fun. Denis Levant. And... Um, 
the movie is sort of him jumping between genres okay. as a different character in each segment. It's so hard to describe. Yeah. But it's about it's about filmmaking. It is about uh you know, it's about storytelling, but it's also about blocking. Okay. It's about arrangement of the shot. That's why when they cut his boner out for the uh Netflix thing, yeah. when you see it, you'll understand the boner's gotta be there because it is about the structure of a painting. Okay. And that is an important aspect. Yeah. You'll know if it makes Do sense. Do they but literally black it out? It, apparently it's just kind of like in the shadows okay. you know but like i saw that movie in the theater and he just he fucking hangs rock hard dong yeah. for the whole scene <laughs> and it's and it's and i think that's what makes it's so funny too because that's yeah. what makes americans weird like yeah. we're at the point like okay, you show a dick yeah. but a boner yeah yeah no, no, no way no no, no, no yeah. way. and it's like the scene's not even a sexually charged right. scene it's meant to be an aesthetic thing and yeah. so I could defend it all day, but this is yeah. not even the scene I'm talking about. Yes, please. Uh, there's a scene where he does a mocap recording. Oh, cool. So he goes into a studio, puts on a mocap suit, and there's also a woman there doing a mocap sort of thing. And yeah. it's a long, drawn-out scene where they each do their mocap. And then we see that it is in service of this digital movie with these two snakes dancing and fucking. Oh, cool. And I don't know what that movie is, uh-huh. but it's a great movie within uh-huh. a movie. Uh-huh. I, I don't know what it is, yeah. but it's in that moment watching it, I'm watching the snakes do their thing, and it's like... These people just put out this beautiful, like passionate, uh, interpretive dance sort of performance yeah. that looked so cool, and it's in service of this, you know, admittedly very cool. Yeah, uh, but two uh, snakes, snake fucking. you know, and it's and you just it says on one, th- you know, on the one hand, it seems to be saying like, wow, we're really hiding a lot of you know really good work behind Transformers. Yeah, but on the other side, we're saying See, this Transformers movie, a lot of people really cared to make this and put in a lot of work, and it's like I, both of those are defensible, and yeah. I don't know where uh, Leo Carrick is coming down on it. Um, but I, I don't know if he even is at all. Yeah, but yeah. that Snake movie is a great movie within a movie uh, for that reason. I, Holy s- Motors rules. Yeah, you've sold me on that movie a couple of times, and and that hear, hearing about the snakes fucking that might be the thing that gets me to watch it. Honestly, I mean, if you can't find it online uncut, which I think you can, the yeah. Netflix thing that's literally the only difference. Yeah, okay. as much as I would say I don't support Netflix. Yes, editing a movie things, like that. Yeah, you agreed. really got to see this movie. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. definitely do it if you I can. would like to. Um, okay, uh, I bet it's on Canopy. Yeah. It seems oh, to be that kind of interesting. A movie. Yeah, maybe. So, okay, this is like maybe almost like too conventional a choice, but uh, I, I chose Inglorious Bastards. For oh, the that's list. on my list too. Okay. Yeah, Stolz so, Nation. So, yeah, Stern yeah. Nation. I wanted to talk about that, but uh, th- that's part of the reason I brought it up because there is a literal movie within that movie uh, that, you know, there's a long conversation to be had about it because it's an interesting use of propaganda and depiction of propaganda. Um, but I actually, the the reason I wanted to talk about it is. I love the. It is on Canopy, right? That's yes, what it is. Holy Motors is on Canopy. Nice. Um, so maybe that's the unedited one too. Yeah, I, yeah. Would, I would imagine that yeah. they do it that way. Um, I love the finale when uh, uh, the the lead actress. What's her name? Uh, Melanie Laurent. Yeah, Melanie Laurent. When she edits herself into Nation's Pride. Yeah. Um, and you suddenly. It, it should. I love again this list being somewhat of a meta butterflies kisses level meta kind of thing. I like the idea that there is this propaganda movie within the movie Inglorious Bastards that a Jewish woman then edits her, you know, make basically makes her own movie that she edits within that propaganda yeah, yeah, yeah. as its own kind of statement about propaganda and art and the way they interact and the differences are similar. You know what I mean? It's like, mm. and then they literally burn the theater down with film. Mm. So it's like it becomes this like very metatextual. And keeps them in the theater with the film. Yes, yeah, so good. It's it's a very interesting. And I like sort it's of... a, sort of a study of the idea of like the permanence of film isn't necessarily permanent. Like, right. 
You know, the difference between theater and film is that you might get two different performances of theater based on a litany of factors. Yeah. Arguably, they don't want that. In a film, that final cut is the final cut, but what they can't control is the interpretation. Yeah. And so her interpretation was made literal by her editing. Right. And it was in it was layered against this moment of her just saying, you thought you were writing history. Yeah. I just fucking rewrote the history. Yeah. Tonight. Yes. And like, it, it, yeah, that movie, and Tarantino's tapped into something real big there. The idea of the power of film and storytelling, the idea yeah. that they made this propaganda story uh, to sort of quote unquote end the war by, you know, basically if, if they can get everybody to agree with their ideas, they can conquer and, and that quote unquote ends their, you know, they reach their goal. Mm-hmm. Whereas she, literally takes film and ends the war with it yep by burning uh hitler alive and yeah. you know so it's like fil- oh, it's so film and story right ends the war but in two completely different you know what i mean Not it's, the it's, way they want it yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and their legacy's gone she yes. cut their film yes. up yep she burned them to death Burn, with yep. it and burned it yep it's yep. yeah it's, oh, it's, that movie's brilliant it's really brilliant yeah that, that was what i want to talk what about was weird is I, I only put it on well that's my list that's a different list <laughs> um i only put it on on my list just because i I love the way that that propaganda film looks when they play it. I agree. And it is very Eli Rothy like yeah. as the the sort of just like carnival barker that yes. he is. That fits perfectly into the propaganda propagandic nature of it if that's a word. Uh, yeah, I like Call that. it a word. You like yeah, it. Yeah. And so yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up in that way cuz I, I wasn't even thinking of it on that level. Oh, that's awesome. Uh well, hit me hit me with another one there. All right. Um this one is <laughs> Oh man, I have so many that I cuz I have way more than 5. Uh-huh. So let's move Holy Motors. Um, okay, just because this is this this was a great uh, showcase of a director directing well in a movie where he wasn't called to. Uh, in the middle of Home Alone, he oh, puts yeah. on Angels with Filthy Souls, uh-huh. and it's an old, I imagine, Prohibition era gangster movie yes. that is was directed by Chris Columbus. Uh-huh. For this. And it's like, yeah, he. I mean, I, I don't want to say he didn't. He can direct. Yeah. But Home Alone is not a movie you think of for its direction, right. uh, except when it gets to its more slapsticky moments. Yeah. And uh, and people forget it's a John Hughes movie too. He wrote that shit. And, and people also forget that it's a movie about a kid who thinks he wished his family away. The traps are secondary. Yeah. That's just what took over in the franchise yeah. they, when they jasoned it. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm always surprised when I rewatch the first one how long it takes to become oh, the yeah. movie I remember and it being. And how good it is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good movie. Yeah. But um, yeah, he Angels with Filthy Souls is the movie that Kevin is probably not allowed to watch yes. and puts it on while he's alone to be bad and can't handle the intensity. Yes. Not at all. But it's just a dumb movie where a guy yells at someone who <laughs> who did him wrong, yeah. and then he gives him the, to the count of the count of ten, yeah. and it's one, two, ten, yeah. <laughs> and he laughs while blowing him away with a Tommy gun. Well, and it's and if I remember it, right, it's like the the little bit of plot thread you get is something about like you've been sweet sleeping with my wife and oh, I knows yeah, yeah. it, and Snake Eyes is who told me about yeah. it. It gets you lousy, yeah, lion, yeah. no good, keister. Yeah, 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 yeah it's, exactly. It's and that's what's so good about it is it's the perfect parody of that kind of stuff. Yeah. The dude is positively terrifying. Yeah, he looks like Bill Maher, like was in a microwave. He's yeah. just like he looks. He's just ah. And then in the sequel, yep. he gets his hands on a copy of Angels with Even Filthier Souls. That's and so it's good, insane. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing, but now it's you've been smooching everybody. Yeah, that's what it is. You've been smooching cheeks, yeah. Bony yeah. Bob. <laughs> 
Cliff, I could go on forever, baby. <laughs> I, Cheeks, bony bub, Cliff yeah, is great. so funny. And it's played up to the most heightened and, and dare I say, awful gag. Oh, but yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know, it's just a great moment of like, I'm going to direct a little gangster movie <laughs> in the middle of my kid movie. Yeah. And it, it's it's probably my favorite moment in that whole movie yeah. is Angels with Filthy Souls. Well, and it's like, that is such a hilarious title yeah. to be the title of like that movie. And to then be like... I, the fact that the sequel of it has like just the perfectly like not well thought out yeah. sequel to you know what I mean? Like it's so perfect. It's sequelitis. Yeah, yeah. And and what's cool is that sequelitis affecting Angels of Filthy Souls, but it's also like that joke in itself is just totally a sequelitis moment yes. for Home Alone yes. 2. They're like, that worked in the first one. Let's do, Let's it, do again. it again. That but I love it. It's yeah. so good. That's great. And because uh, when I was a kid, I just assumed that was a real movie. Yeah. And now as an adult, I realize how utterly stupid I was as a kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I mean, of course, this was going to be on my list. Tropic Thunder. Oh yeah, I knew it was going to be, so I, I didn't put it on mine. It's still one of my favorite comedies. I recommend the director's cut if you can find it. It's it's infinitely better. Much and they're better. Both great. And I think that it sells the idea of you are watching the movie that they tried to make out of that book better. Yeah. Um. It it get it just there's a few more plot mechanics in it that allow for it. You I don't know. I I it feels a little more complete to me as a fake movie that was made and now we are watching it, despite the fact that it was made in the way that it was yeah. made. You know. Those those trailers at the beginning. I mean, they're in the regular cut yes. too, but they yeah. really sell it. Yeah. That's one that trying to convince my dad not to skip past those on the DVD was insane. impossible to explain. I gave up. We yeah. missed the third one because he just <laughs> it, it was not. But they're trailers. I'm like, it's yeah. I'm gonna choose my battles on this one. Yeah. I'm just gonna well, eat. And it's like that weird thing of like you could almost pay the movie a compliment that it's so. To me, it's so clear that the Tug Speedman movies that are advertised at the beginning of that are ridiculous <laughs> who left the fridge yeah open. <laughs> jokes about a certain kind of movie <laughs> got a baby but they're Two done <laughs> just well enough that dads everywhere just think they're watching you a trailer to that kind of ridiculous movie everything looks that ridiculous yes. to a dad exactly no matter what it exactly is. you yep. should have heard my dad's opinions on gritty <laughs> how could you not love gritty he was yeah. like i think it's stupid yeah. i'm like yes yeah yes it is yeah yeah dad we agree about that part you're just dadding yeah yeah no, that like literally, I like watch my parents get freaked out when trailers happen in movie theaters. Yeah, because oh, like yeah. the way trailers are now, they're like edited so fast and they're so loud and they're so bright and the sound is so loud. And there's an hour of them. I literally <laughs> watch them like they either glaze over and check out, or I watch their brains start to fry as they like try and make sense of what they're seeing. You know, like mom, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, like, eh, eh, yeah. Eh, yeah. Eh. No, it's just Bumblebee. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just Bumblebee, exactly. Mom, exactly. which looks pretty damn. Good. It does look pretty good. It looks like directed an by Kubo and the Two Strings. Real, oh, yeah. Sold. Gonna be good. Because that looks to me the way that I always wanted a Transformers movie to be. Agreed. And the first Transformers movie I still it think gets is there. legit good. Yeah. It's, it's there, but this looks to be... I th yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. What are the what are the movies? There's the Tug Speedman. Uh, yeah. The, oh, so his, his are... Um, oh, the subtitle is Global Meltdown. What's, oh, yeah. <laughs> All I remember is who left the fridge open. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, stupid. Man, what are those called? But it's one of them, Satan's Alley. Satan's Alley. That's, that's the one that one, Kirk, yeah. Kirk Lazarus and Toby Maguire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then MTV's the stupids, Best Kiss no? winner. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, they're the fatties. The I believe. fatties. The fatties fart too. Mike Portnoy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mike Portnoy yeah. and Mike Portnoy. Yeah, and it's just That's him so making good. fart faces while there's yeah. Man, we 
we don't deserve Jack Black. I we know. really don't. He's, he's amazing. He's one of the greats. He yeah. really, really and is. And he, you know, to me, I, a lot of people complain about him like feeling a little checked out in that movie, but I actually I think... I don't think so. He's, he's on heroin. I, and I think he's nailing like what he's doing in that movie, and it's literally all in service of two like enormous punchlines at the end of that movie that he's the star of. Mm-hmm. I think he has to be the way he's portraying that character early in the movie for that crazy punchline where he's tied to the tree and he's like, oh, I will suck you. Yeah. 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 And then the heroin thing where he just sees the pile of heroin and he just like puts his face in it. And then he like throws in that one guy's face and, and the, uh, the, Oh, what's the kid's name who I like? Jay Baruchel. Jay Baruchel's like, all right, well we should get out of here. And and Jack Black goes, yeah, I know he's only going to be asleep for three to four days. Yeah. Delivers that yeah, 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 it's so He's got good. it down clinical to yeah, the science. Yeah, yeah. I I never thought he was checked out in that movie. I no. just thought that that movie's not really about him. Right. Yeah. But I also think that the way he could be perceived as checked out is because that's the joke about Mike Portnoy. Yeah. Is that he's fucking checked out, yes. and this is his prestige Ex- picture. Exactly. And it's not. I think he's doing like the picture. real work in that movie. Yeah. You know what oh, I mean? Oh yeah. And, he's and definitely. It, doing and those it. two punchlines hit happens huge to everybody. because of that. Jim Carrey had yep. that moment where he really wanted to be to go drama. Yes. Uh, Farley was about to. He yep. was about to do his fatty yep. arbuckle picture. Yep. You know, all comedians want to go to that and like. And it's funny because Jack Black has and never yeah. made a thing of it because yeah. he's just the best. Yeah, he's great. Man, he's great. Tropic Thunder it's, is, we're 10 years out from that. That movie is 100% a masterpiece. Yeah, it, it really is. It's definitely one of my favorite movies from that decade, I think. I, I, I really love it. And yeah, I mean, as, as far as the metatextual fake movie of it all, this is just, you know, I, I think that's actually a great example of them finding a way to like make that work without it getting like too confusing yeah, yeah, yeah. but confusing enough that that's part of the joke you know and it's not like too much yeah that's exactly. the kind of thing that it could be so many things thrown at you that the concept falls apart yeah. and it's like it's actually the, there's one thing that i would i would tweak in that movie yeah i think danny mcbride could have been funnier oh yeah yeah but at the same time it's another one it's not about him yes. he's he's more of a side character yeah. i just love him so yeah. much yeah, yeah agreed yeah. but man that's when <laughs> my favorite gag i think is when the director first gets blown up and Ben still Tug Speedman has his yeah. head on the gun yeah. and he's making it talk and yeah. he's like eating the neck wound. Yeah. It, it's tremendously gross. That's yeah. a great prosthetic. It's I don't know, but it's just so stupid. He, huh? he does a great physical comedy gag there where he what he say as he's holding the head, he's saying like, guys, come on, it's all corn syrup, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And then he to prove it, he licks like a little bit of the blood <laughs> off the bottom of the head and he makes this face like it's the most disgusting thing <laughs> he's ever tasted, but keeps going like, see, what did I tell you? Smoke and mirrors. Ben Stiller's so good at that. That move. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Man, he's another great. All right. Um, what am I on? My three? Uh four, I think. I think. Oh, maybe. No, no, because I yes, did Angels right, of Filthy right, Souls right. and Holy Motors. Oh, but I also did three amigos. Yes. I don't yeah. know where we are. Yeah, I think we're at four. Okay. So um this one I will say. Yeah, let's do Hamlet. Oh, the yes. The Arnold Schwarzenegger starring action vehicle in the middle of Last Action Hero. I thought about putting this on my list, but I figured it might make yours. There's there's, there's not much to say about it. I mean, that movie is all about uh, gathering references. Yes. But I think that movie isn't just gathering references. Right. It is speaking about the business. It's speaking about the formula of action movies. It's just speaking about the artifice of film. And it's it's indicting the art the artifice, but it's also like like hugging it and saying that's also why we love this stuff. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. But uh, he uh, the kid passes out in class. He's just like uh, daydreaming. That's correct. And he daydreams movies that uh, that he puts Jack Slater into. Yes. And so they are learning about Shakespeare in school. Mm-hmm. And so he imagines this 
black and white, but for the explosions. Yes. Hamlet movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it's just, you know, to be or not to be. <laughs> yeah. Not to be. It's yeah, so yeah. Good. And him holding, like, the skull. Like, yeah, there's, he like, crushes yes, it. yeah. He lights his cigar because they have cigars. Yes, of course. But someone says something like, whatever, fair, fair king. And he's yeah. like, who said I was fair? Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. You know, cuts his head. I don't know what he does. It's, it's just very funny. Yeah. And it's one of the most Shane Blackie things on its face I've ever seen. Yeah. So I just love it. And it's also really fun watching Arnold shamelessly ape his own persona. He gets it. And, yeah, yeah. It's, I think that's the key to his success. Yeah. Is because everything should be working against him, but he yeah. gets it. Yep. Whatever it is that he puts himself in, he gets it. Yep. I'm in. Yeah. I'm I sold. Agree. Oh, I'm so glad you put that on your list. I, yeah. was, I was pretty sure it would make it. Of course. Uh, so this this will be my last one, but feel free to then list off a. a oh, yeah. A, a, I know you got a bunch. I, I actually have my other, my number two and number one if I were to rank them. That's so fine. Perfect. Easy. So this will be my last one. Uh, I, I watched this uh, a few years ago, uh, rewatched it. I don't know if you, I think you've seen this movie. I don't know if you've seen it in a long time. In Bowfinger. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, fake person ninjas. <laughs> so they're fake person ninjas. The movie that they're starring in, in the like as the credits are about yeah, to roll, yeah, yeah. but when they the have m- to climb over the thing and it's yeah. hard. Yeah, the movie they're making though is called Chubby Rain. I forgot about that, but now Be- that you say it, <laughs> because the plot is about aliens coming to Earth inside of raindrops. That's incredible. So it's called Chubby Rain, uh, and it is. I gotta a- watch this again. Bowfinger is so funny. I couldn't believe how funny it was like rewatching it as an adult because i saw it in theaters when yeah, it came out same. I, that might be the only time i've seen it was the one time in the theaters that was probably the only time wow. i had seen it until recent years and it is i'm telling you man it's like so underrated it's i remember so you were hype funny. on it right after you watched it too uh, yeah it's great and it's chubby rain that's killer and the whole plot is basically that like steve martin is this director that's like down on his luck he's been trying to have success for years he never quite made it never Really got the success he was looking for, and he found one huckster to give him like just enough money to make one last movie. And so this has got to be the one that's really big, or his career is over. Uh, so he needs the biggest movie star in the world, of course, which is basically Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy playing himself. What's his name? I can't remember. To be I feel honest like with it's you, a name. It, buddies. No, buddies. The the bad one. Yeah, the, the goofy one. Yeah. Buddy, uh... I can't, I really can't remember. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. But they the uh, the plot is basically that. So he needs this guy to star in his movie. He knows that's never going to happen. So he's going to guerrilla shoot a movie around that guy. He's just going to find him out and about in L.A. and just have extras walk up to him and hand him things and deliver dialogue to him. And whatever he says, that's what his character says in the movie. What he doesn't know is that this guy is becoming a Scientologist while simultaneously having visions of aliens visiting him at night. So he's literally losing his mind. I don't remember the Scientology angle at all. He's losing his mind and joining a religion that's reaffirming all of the like negative like uh, trips that he's having yeah, as yeah. he's losing his mind. <laughs> and the movie he's him. making is about an alien invasion. So it's also reaffirming like what's it's so I have funny. To watch this again. All I remember is fake person images. Yeah. And and then so the and then the thing is I remember is, like the joke about him showing his butt. Yes. And Eddie Murphy does a great nerd laugh. Yes. I yeah, remember he, that. The characters he played, it, it like reminded me how great Eddie Murphy Eddie is. Eddie Murphy's great. Yeah. And he just doesn't do it anymore. Yeah. I don't, well, he is extremely profitable in the family yeah. market. Yeah. So people still show up. But like, if he showed up and did like a fresh stand up set like Sandler just yep. did, yep. or even just like was like, I'm coming out with a hard R crazy movie. Like yeah. he had a moment with Dream Girls that he yeah. didn't do anything with. I know. He's good, man. He's so great in that movie because he plays that other character too. Then they basically find this guy that looks just like the actor, yeah, yeah, yeah. so they can make some of the connective tissue. I gotta get his it's, name. It's so funny. 
Uh, and just, I think Chubby Rain is maybe the funniest fake movie name I've it's ever heard. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and there, I, in researching this list, the yeah. one that kept coming up, and it doesn't make my list, but I think is a great funny title, was yeah. Redo. Oh, yes. In Funny People. From, yeah. It's yep. just about he's born again as a baby. Yeah. <laughs> Redo. Yeah. Uh, um, Bowfinger, right? Bowfinger. Bowfinger, yeah. I really do need to rewatch that. It's really fun, man. It, 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 Kit Ramsey yes. and Jif Ramsey. Jif <laughs> Ramsey, that's right. Yeah. Amazing. It's re- it's really funny. I really liked it. And it's got a good cast. Like, Jamie Kennedy's in it. There's a bunch of people you don't expect to see pop up in it. I remember Heather Graham. Yep. Oh, Christine Baranski. Yep. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, there's like a bunch of people pop up in it. I don't remember that at all. Yeah. It's, it's really funny. John Cho. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Scientology is not in it by name, by the way. Yeah, it's yeah, called it, something else, it, but it would it's never clearly be, yeah. sci- and which is crazy because it's like that movie came out in like the mid to late '90s, and it's like that's Steve Martin like tapping into something that was happening in Hollywood before I remember really knowing yeah. about it. You know, because well, it had been around since the '80s. Yeah, but I think it was around this time that it started to be like there's a lot of prominent people in the yes, biz right. that are deep in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Still going. Very interesting. Still going. Yeah. Tom yeah. Cruise somehow transcended it. Yes. Yep. You know, though, if someone was like, if someone came up to me and they were like, listen, I'm a Scientologist and I'm passionate about it and you should be too. I'd be like, listen, we can't talk anymore. And they'd be like, what if I throw myself out of this plane? I'd be like, we can hang. <laughs> okay, we can hang That's out. That's fine. Yeah, I, I'd don't, at least just like to watch you do that. And yeah. Just go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please go for it. And be polite. Yeah. Be crazy polite. So hit me with your two and one, because that's my full list. Okay, so my two is, uh, I mean, just about everything that happens in Boogie Nights. Yes. Um, but my favorite I, is Brock Landers, Angels Live in My Town. I figured that would it's be on your so list. It's so good. Yeah. It's the perfect parody of, there's a movie that I saw at, at Exhumed Films once yeah. called Death Death Warrant, I think okay. it was, or Death Promise. Okay. Maybe Death Promise. Okay. Um, Death Promise is way funnier. And it's it's a white boy kung fu movie. So it's like, okay. you know, they like after uh, Bruce Lee, yep. every white dude grew his hair out long to look Asian. They wore the tight shirt and the karate bell yeah. bottoms. And uh, that's what Mark Wahlberg is doing as Brock Land, as Dirk Diggler as Brock Land. Yes, yeah. And uh, Death Promise reminds me of that because it is a white boy kung fu movie. Yeah. And it's probably my favorite thing I've ever seen it exhumed because it's not even really that good. Yeah. But it just, that is such a funny thing to me. And Bare Knuckles was sort of similar to that. Yeah, I like I like that in the same that. way. Yeah. That one's a little bit darker. This yes. one was more like, hey, we're all cool guys. Yeah, yeah. It, it, basically, it's a white guy just being like, I'm a hip, funky black guy who does China guy kung fu. Because <laughs> they would actually use the term China yes, guy. Yes, of course, yeah. Um, and so it's that's just hilarious to me. Yeah. But it's a very, very prominent image in the set. Like, we forget that after Bruce Lee, a lot of people wanted to look like Bruce him. Bruce-ploitation is a thing. Bruce, yeah, there's yeah. Bruce Lee. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. But, and I don't know, Boogie Nights just really taps into my favorite era of film. Yeah. And the moment that it, it has the opportunity to go full-on into parody and doesn't, even in a movie that has a choreographed dance number, <laughs> yes. is in Brocklander's Angels Live in My Town. Yeah, exactly. It's just so good. Yeah. That's from our buddy Andy Elijah. Oh, Let the yeah. Corpses Tan is on Canopy. Oh, hell yeah. Should definitely watch that. The movie's yeah. cool. I really want to watch that. All right, my number one is a throwaway because it's the funniest thing I have ever seen in terms of a movie within a movie, okay. and it's in Billy Madison. Uh-huh. There's a, and it's a gag that, that happens in a couple movies where they're already watching something on TV, and then the newscast that changes the plot comes yeah. in. And so right before the newscast comes in that uh, – the principal was actually the revolting blob yeah, okay. um, who killed somebody back in the day. Yeah. They're watching a show that has a St. Bernard dog 
and it's a real dog that they clearly put something in its mouth, so it's just going. <laughs> but the dog says, "Speak for yourself, moron!" <laughs> and then Adam Sandler's buddies are like howling with laughter, yeah. and that's all it is. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It was clearly just made for. But I love that they were all sitting around watching a talking dog, like a shitty talking yeah. dog movie. That's really <laughs> funny. Speak for yourself, moron! <laughs> <laughs> it's so good that's funny i don't even remember that that's really funny it's such a throw I, we did a one of the split decisions was like favorite uh animal in a movie okay. i use that for that oh that's great just yeah speak for yourself moron i don't know what it is yeah that's good i love it there's a, a i have to do it there's a similar gag in hot rod okay yes, where please. before it's a scene starts and they're watching the news and the newscaster says and the dog walked itself home ate a pizza and went to sleep <laughs> in other news and they just go into <laughs> It's that sort of a gag. That's but so good. I like speak that. Speak for yourself, Moran. Yeah. Okay, I'm done. Well, there we go. Butterfly Kisses honorary <laughs> top five. Yes, right on. Yeah. So uh, check out that movie. Yes. Uh, check us out. I like to movie on everything iTunes and where where you get your podcasts. That's where we are. Hell yeah. Boom. We're in your head like a like the uh, what's his name <laughs> like the uh, peeping Tom. Yeah, that's right. The the blink the, man. The blink man. Yeah, send us an email. I like two movie at gmail.com. Tell it's us the what numeric you want us to watch. Two, the That's digit right. two. Right. I like two yeah. movie. On Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Uh, and thank you again to Eric Christopher Myers uh, for being here with us. That was excellent. And mm. I really hope we can get him on again sometime because I would sure love that. Again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Philadelphia. That's with an F, letterbox.com slash Philadelphia. I write for cinema76.com and farsightedblog.com. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's about it for me right now. All the same stuff, but with my name. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Cinema 76. Uh, check out my film festival coverage at Findy. Yeah. And uh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, letterboxed, uh, all that stuff. Yeah. All the things. And this yeah. show, this show that you're listening to, it's yeah. a show. That's right. It is a show. It's a show. Uh, oh, you know what? I wrote a follow up piece to our psycho series that's on Cinema 76. Yes. And that's a that great out. piece. Thank you. Appreciate and it's, that. I read it and I was like, I feel like I'm going to read this and end up saying i had this conversation but i ended up like falling into it so oh that's great work. thanks yeah. man oh it was that's good, good stuff thank you very much i appreciate absolutely. that uh so absolutely. yeah you can check that out on cinema76.com i guess st- oh yeah st- uh the next shame files is gonna be the oh. hunt for red october kicking off my jack ryan series which I, i'm actually like already over it yeah yeah but yeah. Uh, i'm gonna yeah. do it that's, that's oh, the important thing that's actually that's probably the best that's time the to way dig to in it. i'm yeah. dadding out on it i'm yep. like yeah i'm better than this yeah yeah i just want to watch fucking halloween you know? yeah that's good so yeah check out shame files podcast dan will be guesting on there uh shortly and uh, all right, let's wrap it up. My name is Garrett Smith, and I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I like to movie movie. And we all know that you like Ooh, to movie movie because we, we like, like to movie. movie. Blink, blink, blink. <laughs>